This is the Manga Mavericks podcast from AllComic.com, episode 30. We are a podcast not only dedicated to talking about manga as a medium, but as an industry. I'm Colton. And I'm Sed, and we have one great discussion for you guys today. We're talking about great teacher Onizuka to commemorate the manga's 20th anniversary with special guest Nick Rowe of AllComic.com. And we're going to be going not only GTO, but the entire franchise as a whole in as much detail as we possibly can in two to three hours. But first, we've got an hour's worth of news to go through, so we should get right on that. Yeah, and we should probably start off the news with a bit of a correction from uh, from the last episode, as uh, some of you may remember. We previously talked about how uh, One Piece had broken another circulation record. Uh, Psycho Jump uh, announced that uh, One Piece had 350 million copies in print worldwide. But as it turns out, a press release for the uh, One Piece Tokyo Tower event apparently recently just came out and basically stated specifically that One Piece has 350 million copies in Japan specifically. And as far as the world goes, apparently One Piece has about 66 million copies in print outside of Japan, which makes for a grand total of 416 million copies in print worldwide. Which makes sense, because I think even on the last episode, I was a bit confused, because I thought I remembered, like, the 350 million uh, circulation record sounded a bit too familiar with me, like I had heard that announced somewhere before previously. So I think counting its circulation outside of Japan and adding that makes this seem like it makes a little more sense. Um, that's a lot of manga, though. That's a lot of volumes of One Piece. Yeah, I mean, Wiz reported back in November 2013 that One Piece had 345 copies in print worldwide. So the idea that it had only sold like 5 million more copies in three and a half years definitely seems suspect. So this correction makes much more sense. Uh, only 5 million worldwide? That's... See, see now that that normally that would seem like a big deal, but for One Piece, that's like nah, there should be more than that. The eighty-fourth volume has sold more than one point five million copies in Japan alone in its first three days. Yeah, so this correction makes so much more sense. Yeah, so there you go. One Piece breaking records yet again. Not really news at this point. I guess it's kind of new since we're talking about it. So just to move on. Uh, to the rest of our news, basically, with all of our serialization news that we usually have. First of which being that apparently the official website of uh, Shin Chosha's monthly comic at Bunch, that magazine uh, recently revealed that Kosuke's gangsta manga is going to be resuming in the magazine's July issue on May 20th. Previously, the series went on hiatus since uh, November 2015 due to Kosuke's uh, uh, some health issues. As someone who isn't really caught up with Gangsta, but has read enough of the manga to know that he likes it, I'm glad this is coming back. I I was kind of afraid that Gangsta wouldn't come back, because every once in a while, you know, when manga goes on hiatus, every once in a while it either takes a long time to come back, or just may not ever come back, unfortunately. So I'm glad that Gangsta's one of the few ones to, like, actually come back and start re- uh, serialization again. It's pretty nice. Gangsta came back, Black Lagoon came back, Berserk is coming back. Everything is coming back. This is going to be the year of manga that come back. You know what manga isn't coming back, Sid? Yeah. 
So to the surprise of no one, if you had listened to our Shonen Sunday discussion, where we speculated that Kajer was on its way out, it has ended. The final chapter was published, and the series will end with the 18th volume, which will ship out in July. So there's been a lot of speculation that the Keijo manga was canceled because the anime sold poorly. But recently, the mangaka, Daichi Surayomi, clarified and corrected these rumors. Surayomi was told to wrap up Keijo before the anime had even finished. And the anime's uh, home video sales were also misreported. The first volume didn't sell just 715 units, apparently. It sold like 7,150 units, which is still selling poorly, but it is worth noting that, you know, it, it did sell better than previously reporting. Just, it still didn't sell great. And Toriyomi goes on to note that, you know, he wished that Shikaka-kun could have shown him so more support and, you know, uh, they didn't give him more assistance when he asked for them. And he overworked himself to the point, like, he passed out over an hour. And, you know, he has a lot of complaints about how Sunday treated Keijo. But when you put it in perspective, Keijo was never really a successful series. If you go back to how it's been selling, like, from the first volume, it's never grown in sales. In fact, it decreased at one point and only somewhat went back a little bit after the anime. It's like Sunday's poorest seller, and it's kind of amazing that it got a three-year run, as it is. I think that Shigaka gave it plenty of uh, support, and the fact that it got an anime, when more successful series, like Psych once again, Among Gutters, like, are selling way better than it, and still don't have anime, I don't think that Soriomi has too many grounds to complain about it not getting enough chances to, you know, find an audience. For what it's worth, I think the anime has increased its notoriety and it at least has developed a cult fan base overseas now. So I don't think he can feel too bad about that. And who knows, maybe one day the manga will be licensed in North America for whatever reason. But, you know. Well, well at least, I mean, at least to his point, I mean, I don't know. I, I don't know if I'm ready to agree that Shigaku Khan really gave Keijo a chance because it to me it seems like maybe they thought that okay this is a this is a new manga about girls in swimsuits who who fight with their with their butts okay this this will probably make us a bunch of money like it ran for three years the sales did not improve at all it was ranking towards the end of the magazine it just was not picking up in popularity, and it was not selling at an acceptable level of sales. Like, if this was a Shonen Jump series, Kedra would have been out in three months. It just has to do with, like, how Sunday was running at the time that they were, like, willing to let Keijo coast on. And, like, I sympathize with Soriyami and the passion he put into the manga and, like, how hard he was trying to make it a hit. But the fact is, Keijo never became a hit in the three years of its serialization. There's nothing Chicago Khan could have done to make it one. If you can compare it to, like, series that have less promotion and less, like, push behind it that still sold more in Sunday, you know, they, they already are selling more than Keijo. So it's like... It just is, it did not pick up. It did not find a, enough of an audience. It just did not perform. Uh, f to me, this seems like it seems like Shogaku Khan was 
probably not supporting Keijo as much as Soriyomi uh, wanted because it, it it seems like to me as Soriyomi what... wanted, sure, but like to the level they were supporting other series, like the amount of push they give most of their series like it got a fair bit i don't think you can deny that i don't think like they were like actively like not promoting it or not giving it as many chances as other series in sunday had gotten well i mean soon if you let me finish <laughs> mm-hmm. i was i was going to say that it seemed like to me like they probably thought the, that you know people would this is the weird thing about keijo to me Considering what the premise of Keijo is, I'm kind of surprised it didn't pick up, because this really seems like the kind of thing that, like, a lot of the otaku crowd would kind of, like, really, I, I feel like the otaku crowd would have really, would have really eaten this up. Like, it eh, seems like the kind the of thing that should too, The characters have too much agency. There's not enough male inserts. I guess that's true. I mean, I don't, from what I hear, there are male characters in the manga, but I can't really confirm or deny that, because I haven't read it yeah, myself. Yeah, but I think they go away after a certain point. That's fair. I'm kind of surprised it didn't do better, because, like, to me, you really have to, like, you really kind of have to mess up pretty hard to make this not work out. It's just kind of surprising to me. I don't think Keijo is poorly executed in terms of what it was going for. In fact, I think in many respects, Keijo is a lot of fun and, and a more uh, enjoyable, you know, use of fan service than, like, most other fan service anime and manga series. I guess it just didn't have the kind of premise that appealed to people because it's not really that much of an otaku e series in terms of like you know there's like this fantasy there's like love there's like these hot like waifu love interests or whatever. It feels like it should have been though. It's like your basic shonen sports manga. It just happens to be about girls fighting each other with their boobs and butts. And that that's what I enjoyed about it. Yeah, I, I enjoyed that, like, it was more over the top, and it, I didn't feel embarrassed watching the anime as, like, the four episodes I watched, you know, when that was out a couple seasons back. But I do kind of feel for him in that, like, maybe he could have used more assistance, I don't know, because, like, I mean, I don't I don't know what he really all had, all he had to work with, but I do feel kind of bad for him about that. He couldn't get as many assistants as he wanted, but also at the same time, I can understand that, you know, if Keijo's not making Shogakukan any money... They're not going to waste the money to give him more assistance, so I can kind of see both sides of that. I mean, I don't know. I I told I totally understand Keijo ending because, like we again, like we discussed on the show, it just it just wasn't doing well at all, really, in 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 any respect of the word. So it's amazing that it ran for this long, honestly. Exactly, and it's a you know three years. That's a pretty good run, you know. Honestly, that's not that's know? not a bad run at all. Yeah, really. I mean, I know that Soriyomi had more planned for the story, but three years is you know pretty good, you know, all things considered. When you look at like how many series don't even survive even one, so I mean, I don't think it's anything to be like you know disappointed in. Like, and the, you know, the fact that he was allowed to go on for three years, even though, like, the sales were, like, so poor is, is a feat in of itself. Anyway, Keijo is gone now. Love it or hate it, it was a thing, and uh, it opens up a new space in Sunday for maybe a series that hopefully will be more successful, and hopefully Soriyomi will be able to return to Sunday with a more successful work as well. And there you go. Speaking of other manga that are ending... Yeah, so moving on to more manga that are ending, the June issue of Futabasha's monthly action magazine has revealed that Gengoro Tagame's My Brother's Husband, 
will be ending in the next issue on May 25th. Just a few things to, I guess, expound upon, just in case some of our listeners may not know. First off, uh, Gengoro Tagame, he's basically known for creating gay erotica, essentially, with uh, very big, burly guys. He's primarily known for creating works of that persuasion. My Brother's Husband seems to be a more family-friendly work, considering its premise. Because essentially, My Brother's Husband, which I, I find kind of interesting, is basically about a single father who has a twin brother who moved out of the country, moved out of Japan to Canada, and ended up marrying another man. And ten years later, his brother passes away, and basically his brother's partner, Mike, comes to visit Japan to mourn the loss of his lover, and also meets his brother Yaichi and his daughter. And basically, my brother's husband seems to be sort of a tale of acceptance, with uh, Yaichi basically just coming to terms about, you know, who his brother was as a person. And, you know, I, I felt like that's a very interesting, very interesting kind of series. I wouldn't mind reading it. And it, thankfully, we'll get the chance to because uh, My Brother's Husband is being released this coming June, actually, in two-in-one omnibus editions. I very much look forward to reading this because I will definitely be uh, looking at this hopefully sometime soon. And hopefully, may maybe we could talk about it on the show. I don't know if I just happen to have thoughts on it. But that manga is officially ending. It didn't look like it was like too long. I think it it looks like it's going to maybe end on like four volumes, it looks like. Mm -hmm. It wasn't too terribly long. So there you go. It's short enough and uh, I'm looking forward to checking it out. Nice to see more of these kind of LGBT stories being brought over here. Definitely looking forward to reading this as well as my lesbian experience with loneliness when they come out. I forgot about that until just recently when I saw Casey tweet about it. I'm like, oh yeah, we did talk about that on the show. I do want to read that as well. Mm -hmm. Moving on to our final manga that'll be ending is Tsukasa Hojo's Angel Heart, which will be ending in the next issue of Only Comic Xenon on May 25th. Angel Heart is a sequel manga to City Hunter, and it ran for basically 16 years. Wow, that's a long time. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a longer run than the original City Hunter had. So, wow. yeah, it's a, it was basically about, like, the main love interest in the original City Hunter kind of died, and then, like, her, like, part of her, like, body was, like, transplanted into another girl, and so now they both of their personalities are in the, this other girl or something. It was, it was very strange. You can actually <laughs> read uh, the first 13 chapters of this legally on uh, the Silent Manga Edition website, where they have, like, the first 13 chapters. And, you know, I've been keeping up with, like, their monthly releases of it uh, ever since they started, like, publishing it in, like, January 2016 or whatever. And it's... Uh, I think I should probably have read the original City Hunter first, but it's not, like, too hard to pick up on what was going on. It seemed fun enough. They haven't updated any of this, the silent manga edition stuff since December, so I don't know if they're going to continue, like, uh, translating it. But I'm sure, like, the City Hunter franchise will continue past Angel Heart. It'll be interesting to see where the story goes from here. I still need to read City Hunter. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I also need to read City Hunter. It just jumped into Angel Heart because, oh, it's uh, legally available. Neat. But uh, now we're going into some novel announcements. And the first being 
Ryogo Naruto's new Bleach novel, which now has a title and will actually be having a digital serialization starting on April 28 on the Shonen Jump Plus app, where the it will update with new content for the novel like every other week, so basically bi-weekly. Uh, this novel is titled Bleach Came for Your Own World, and it'll be about Shuei Hisagi, who is going to throw himself into a new fight as the mystery behind Konami Tozen resurfaces. And it will reveal more details about the Four Noble Families, the Soul King, Arankar, and Fullbringers. Well, so everything is going to basically be involved. And, uh, so, for Shuei Hisagi, got kind of the shaft in the final arc, so it's, it's kind of nice... That he has, like, a, a story to himself and, like, a final closure to, like, his relationship with Tozen. Personally, I would just prefer that Narita just rewrite all of Bleach. <laughs> that would be a difficult undertaking, but I would be interested in seeing him do it, for sure. <laughs> Especially, uh, the, the final two arcs. When you say final two arcs, are you counting Fullbringer, or were there was there another arc... No, I'm counting the Fullbringer and Towson Year Blood War. Those are the arcs I'm referring to. Okay, I'm just making sure. Yeah, Fullbringer sucks. I hate it. Yeah. Someday we have, I will reread Bleach and we will talk about it on this show. Okay. Just as an aside, I've always wanted to do like a, like a reread of like a really long series and maybe like covered on the show in like multiple episodes at some point i don't think we'll be doing that anytime soon but it's something i i kind of want to do because i think it'd be interesting yeah that'd be fun but bleach bleach would be one i i wouldn't mind doing that for because at the very least i really wouldn't take me that long to get through it at, at least <laughs> not a lot of dialogue there that's um, true <laughs> But I guess uh, just moving on to more novel news, uh, Weekly Shonen Jump apparently revealed recently that the One Piece is going to get a new novel called One Piece Novel A, and that the novel will be centering around Ace's past and will be serialized in the upcoming One Piece magazine, which is basically a new magazine being published to celebrate the 20th anniversary of the One Piece manga in general. Unfortunately, I don't think there are any other details besides that i don't even think we know who's writing the novel mm -hmm. at least not as far as i know so not a lot of details there but i guess you know it makes sense ace is still a pretty popular character despite him not really being in the story anymore so there's that i guess i guess depending on who it's going to be written by i, I guess it could be interesting yeah i mean i feel like we already know a lot of details about ace's past so there isn't too much to expand upon but yeah who knows there are still gaps you know, in his story, that could be interesting. Yeah, but uh, I'm, I'm definitely interested in this next one. Yeah. So Berserk is getting a novel penned by Makoto Fukami, who is uh, best known for writing the script for the Psychopaths anime and film, and the Resident Evil film, and also a novelist known for the Young Gun Carnival Light novel series. So this new Berserk novel is going to be coming out on June 23rd. It will have illustrations by Kentaro Miura himself. It is called the Berserk the Flame Dragon Knight. It's going to be an original story focusing on Grunbeld, who is a member of Griffith's ba uh, new band of the Hawk. So that's pretty interesting. I wasn't expecting this character to get his own story. But yeah, it's... Uh, it's pretty interesting. It's going to come out on June 23rd, and I'm hoping Dark Horse will translate it and release it at some point for the West. And yeah, hmm. cool things. Has has Dark Horse ever published a light novel? 
Or just novels in general? I don't think so, but considering Berserk is like their most successful manga license, I, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if they tried to publish it. Yeah, it, it seems like something that would be uh, in their interest, but I guess moving on from that... So we uh, we talked about previously on the show how uh, Shiba Bukuro had a, uh, a one-shot manga coming out in uh, Weekly Shonen Jump, and uh, it looks like uh, Shiba Bukuro's thing is just, is just uh, making one-shots now, which, is, which isn't a bad thing, because uh, it seems like he's going to have another one-shot coming up in uh, Shueisha's Grand Jump uh, this coming fall, and unfortunately that's uh, that's about all the info we have on that. I really wish some of these would, would get published through the um, Viz Shonen Jump, because I actually would like to read these. I wouldn't be surprised if, like, if they need space to fill, they might translate at least the one that got published earlier in Psycho Jump, since that one was pretty short. Well, this new one is actually even shorter, so who knows, but uh, Shimogo said he would want to return to comedy after Toriko, and it seems like he's doing that. I'm sure like he's trying out new concepts with this one shot, and I'm hoping that you know, when he strikes a good idea, that might work for serialization. We'll see him return to the pages of Weekly Shonen Jump. And, you know, we'll get a cool new comedy series from him. Because that'll be pretty good. I haven't really read any of his comedy works. But from the comedy that was in Toriko, I I could say that I wouldn't mind reading his more comedic works. I think he, he could be funny. Yeah, I mean, Sekimatsu leader Den Takashi was, like, really popular back in the day before, you know, uh, Shimabuko got arrested and stuff. So, you know, that was a comedy series. That was, like, extremely popular. It was, like, for a time, it was, like, it was, like, rivaling One Piece in the rankings, I think, at one point. So, you know, I, I, I could see him, like, return to comedy and that and making, like, a surprise hit. Yeah, but I guess we can move on to the next thing. Yeah, so Orange has been getting a lot more follow-up than I've Kind of expected after it ended. Because it's getting a new chapter in the next issue of Monthly Action on May 25th. We don't have any details of what this new chapter is about. But, like, ever since it ended, like, back in 2015, it's it keeps getting some, like, new chapter spin-offs. And alongside, like, various adaptations. So, I guess Orange has some longevity as a, as a franchise. I guess. I'm kind of surprised because it seems like... Orange was pretty one and done. Like, you know, I, I, I can understand one of these spinoffs. I think there was like two chapters told from the perspective of like an, of another one of the characters or something. Yeah, Sua. Yeah. And then I think there was a chapter where like, weren't they all in like college or something? I, I haven't read them. I don't know for sure. So I, I can kind of understand those two, but like, I'm kind of confused as to like, what else is there to explore? That's what I'm interested in. Yeah. But it's not surprising that the next thing has more bonus material coming. Oh, yes. So, um, I think we've talked about this magazine a little bit on the show. Or maybe Bomber and I was just talking about it off mic. I don't really remember. But either way, apparently, uh, Shogakukan has another kind of, like, Sunday magazine known as uh, Shonen Sunday S. Which I know, I know Bomber's explained it to me before, but I, I kind of forget what the point of that magazine in particular is. But I think it's a monthly magazine. And I, I, I feel like if I remember correctly, it's basically a magazine with just a, with just a lot of spinoff material and stuff. It seems like, uh, something that that magazine likes to do is, uh, to run manga adaptations of Detective Conan movies, it seems like, cause, uh, it looks like, uh, the manga adaptation of Detective Conan Crossroad and the Ancient Capital 
which I believe is the seventh Detective Conan movie, but uh, it looks like that manga adaptation is ending, and uh, with that ending, it looks like the same duo behind that adaptation will be creating a new adaptation of specifically Detective Conan The Darkest Nightmare, which was uh, one of the more recent movies, um, which I believe is a more uh, black organization-involved story from what I'm seeing. I've heard V-Lord express his uh, disappointments with that movie, um, so I'm not sure if I'm really looking forward to watching it anymore. (laughs) Yeah. So, I like, I don't know. I find this kind of weird because it's like... I, I guess manga adaptations of the de- of the Detective mo- uh, Conan movies could be fun, but I don't know. It just seems kind of pointless to me. But I will give them this. It's like straight up manga adaptations, I guess, are better than anime manga, which is yeah. like the most redundant thing that I think ever, could ever exist. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I really don't understand the point of those, especially. But along with that, um, the the other spinoff manga that I'm like a lot more interested in is going to be a new manga called Detective Conan, uh, Hanzawa the Criminal, and apparently is going to be a Detective Conan spinoff starring the uh, black-silhouetted criminal that appears in um, in the Detective Conan manga, B- basically the shadow guy. Yeah, that sounds pretty fun. Yeah, I would pay so much money to read this. This sounds like it has a lot of, like, potential to be really good, honestly. Yeah, I mean... The, the idea of, like, the Shadow Man being, like, the star of its own manga is pretty... It's, it's pretty goofy. It's pretty fun. What was he... Is it, is it, like, just his, um, his day-to-day, like, he gets up, he has a, he has a cup of joe, and he's like, oh, I'm, I'm late. Was he like, oh, man, I... Uh, another day of being the Shadow Guy accused of murdering people. Yeah. Uh, maybe it is. That would be amazing. I hope that gets picked up. That's something I want to read. But uh, yeah, Detective Conan getting some new spinoff manga, that's always cool. Mm-hmm. What's also cool is what was recently added into Weekly Shonen Jump. Two new series, We Never Learn and Robot Laser Beam. I was pulling for both of these to get added in, and they have, and uh, they're, they're pretty fun. Yeah, I think, like, out of all the new series that have been added in Jump, I can't really complain, though... If it were up to me personally, I probably would have switched out We Never Learn with Hungry Marie, because I was kind of hoping that would get picked up, seeing as how, like, you know, Beelzebub is, I think, at least for, like, while it was running, I'm pretty sure it had a, had a sizable, like, following over here in the West, even though it wasn't really licensed, but, mm-hmm. you know, I know a lot of people really like that series, so I would have figured, you know, Viz would have at least picked up one of his other works, but I guess not. It surprised me because the staff was very enthusiastic about Hungry Marine, the editor Marlene in particular. But according to Orion in the in the comments of the issue where both We Never Learn and Robot Lisa Beam were added, We Never Learn received a lot of support in the surveys. So those really do matter, guys. I'm not totally happy that We Never Learn like became a harem like immediately with the chapter. After the jumpstart run, but uh, I, I still like We Never Learn, just for the characters and like the the main concept of it. I do think it would have been nice if Hungry Marine were added. I think that might have been a preferable choice than We Never Learn for a lot of people. But also Hungry Marie, I think it's kind of unsure of its situation in uh in Jump in Japan of whether it's gonna really last because it's been. It's been kind of inconsistent, like, how it's been placing. It seems like Jump is pushing it because it gave it a color page recently. But in the rankings, it's not, like, in the, like, 
Tom. Yeah, I I can't honestly see something like we never learn lasting for super long, but <laughs> that's just well, me personally. Nizikoi lasted five years, and that's that's true. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. And I, I think we never learn at least has a way stronger foundation than Nizikoi ever had. So yeah, it, it doesn't seem like we never learn's going to do that thing where it could easily just end their story any time, but they're going to find some way to like some contrivancy to like keep it going. That was something I definitely really did not like about Nisekoi. That was one of the things that bothered me the most. Mm-hmm. Oh, we're gonna now now we can open up the locket. Oh, oh, the lock is broke. Oh, <laughs> I'm gonna oh, oh, we're gonna have to spend a hundred chapters getting it fixed. I guess. Mm-hmm. I hated that so much. That happened two times, I think. <laughs> but no, just that's neither here nor there. We never learn. I don't think I'm like interested enough to read it weekly. Robot laser beam at the very least. I'm going to wait and see if that passes the 50 chapter endurance test, as I like to call it, where if it lasts at least a year in jump, it has some kind of following or Shueisha really believes in it or something. Otherwise, yeah, both of them, I'm not, I'm not interested in reading right now. I'd rather wait for the both of them to build up personally. Dr. Stone, I think, was really the one I was kind of looking forward to the most and the one that I think I'm really going to give my full support to. Just yeah. because I, I like the concept of the story, and I just, I like everything about it enough to where I think it could really work, and I'm hoping it gets some kind of following. Well, I think Dr. Stone is actually quite successful already, from what I've been hearing about its reception in Japan, and of course, the reception in the West has been overwhelmingly positive. So I think that it has a bright future ahead of it. I read everything in Jump, so I'll be keeping up with everything, no matter how long it, uh, they'll go on or whatever. Because uh, I just read everything in jump. Now I feel kind of bad for being picky. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess just to move on from our Jumpstart news. So Seven Seas, once again, licensed a bunch of stuff. I don't think not not as much as they usually do, um, <laughs> thankfully. It, it's Hey, they, they licensed less than ten things. That's, that's a record. But I'm going to say there's probably a theme as to um, some of the stuff they licensed, as I'm sure will become apparent soon enough. Um, the first of which they licensed was uh, Yokai Girls from Kazuki Funatsu, with the first volume being slated for a November 7th release. Just essentially, it's about a normal guy. He's never had a girlfriend, but he can see Yokai. That's the one special thing about him. And he meets a Yokai girl and... I think pretty much things go from there. It's notable that this manga is published in Young Jump, considering a even bigger license that comes from Shueisha coming later. Yeah, this along with the very last thing that got licensed. Yeah, some, uh, some Shueisha titles in here, which I'm sure we'll probably talk about that in a little bit. But just to move on real quick, um, Seven Seas also licensed the Monster Girl Doctor Light Novel Series by Oriko Yoshino, uh, with the first volume being uh, released on December 19th in both print and digital formats, and apparently is endorsed by mm-hmm. um, Okayado, the author of Monster Musume. So I, I guess that's a ringing endorsement if you're a Monster Girl fan. I think when we're all looking back on the history of manga, Okoyado will be the name that everyone looks to as the guy who started this trend, which makes it appropriate that Seven Seas has licensed one of Okuyado's early one-shots for a digital release. Yes, and that one-shot being called uh, Deadline Summoner. Uh, Seven Seas uh, licensed that one-shot digitally and is being sold for two ninety nine, which I think is fair. And Seven Seas 
apparently describes the one-shot as a prototype short to Okoyado's other series, 12 Beasts, which, um, if I'm, correct me if I'm wrong, is also being published by Seven Seas. Yes. The one-shot was also originally published back in, like, 2012, so... So that that's kind of interesting to me that like I'm I'm assuming Monster Musume is probably doing well enough for Seven Seas to where they're kind of like oh we should probably look at um, Okayato's backlog we should sell more of his stuff. Well, if you remember the New York Times list, uh, Monster Musume was like a regular returnee on there, so it's it's no surprise to me that Okayato's work is so lucrative for Seven Seas. And then uh, finally, the very last thing, uh, I guess last two series technically that were licensed, uh, one that was a big surprise for everybody, um, Seven Seas has licensed both To Love Rue and To Love Rue Darkness, and will be selling both of those in print and in digital. To Love Rue will be re- released in two-in-one omnibus editions, with Volume 1 being released uh, this October 24th, along with uh, To Love Rue Darkness, which will be sold in single volumes with Volume 1 being released in print October 31st. So this is kind of a big deal in some aspects. Well, I think in a lot of aspects, this is a pretty big, notable series. For Seven Seas to license it, it means that Wiz would have had to pass on the license entirely. But this is a very popular and notable series that, you know, uh, this probably has been a demand for it. Otherwise, why would Seven Seas been releasing exactly. it? But yeah, I mean, this is a very popular title. This is like, one of the most uh, notable rom-com harem series of the past decade, and now it's finally getting a Western release. Yeah, I guess we should probably mention how, yeah, like, there's been a lot of, I've at least seen a lot of talk that, like, oh, well, hmm, I thought, like, you know, Viz could only pick up Shueisha titles, which I kind of understand that, I guess, that viewpoint, because Viz again, correct me if I'm wrong, is is partly owned by Shueisha, so I guess that's where that theory comes from, but... Yeah, but, you know, you can even look at, like, Kamigori Orange Road is being published by Digital Manga. That's a Shonen Jump title. So, there's precedent for this. Like, Fist of the North Star was being published by Raijin Comics back in the early 2000s. Like, it's not... There have been... And Bloodlicate Battlefront is being published by Dark Horse... Like, there's precedence for Shueisha titles being published by other publishers. Wiz has the first, like, go at, like, what they want, and if they pass on it, like, entirely, like, other, it's up for grads for other publishers. Now, for Shigakukan titles, I think that's exclusively Wiz's purview, because, like, Wiz is majorly owned by Shigakukan, and was originally, like, was solely owned by Shigakukan before, like, uh, a partnership formed between Shigakukan and Shueisha. So, like, uh, stuff like Silver Spoon, that has to be Wiz, unfortunately. Uh, well, that's probably never going to get licensed. Maybe, I don't know. But never say never. Sometimes the world of the Western manga market can surprise us. But, yeah, so To Love Rue finally being picked up. I'm, like, morbidly curious, like, I want to at least check out the first volume since it's being licensed, but I don't think I'm going to be buying it in print because uh, I still live with my family and I don't really want them finding that kind of thing in my room. So <laughs> I'd rather buy it digitally, personally. I'll probably check it out, you know, if the library has it or whatever. I don't know if I'll buy it necessarily because I haven't really liked what I've seen at To Love Root because it's like... He kind of just rips off Yurisayatsura, but like a complete inverse <laughs> of what Yurisayatsura is about. 
Actually, I didn't even think about it like that. It is, I guess it is kind of the same concept. Uh, I mean, it's the same, like, idea. Like, an alien girl comes down and, like, wants to wed, like, this guy. and But, like, you know, True Love Rue is a straightforward harem. And, like, your Siastra in a modern context reads, like, a complete subversion and uh, criticism of the genre. So, it's just, like, a dumb version of your Siastra. Uh, I guess, in the words of your brother V-Lord, uh, I can't wait to read the 69ing officially in English. <laughs> I'm sure that's not even the most out there and bizarre fan service thing in the, in the series. What a time we live in. Um, <laughs> okay, so I, I guess we can just move on to the next thing. Yeah, so Bookwalker is releasing more uh, light novels in English. Their most recent pickup being The Combat Baker and his Automaton Waitress. Which is the platform's first book walker first light novel title with more to come. And light novels under this initiative are going to be exclusive to the book walker Google platform for six months after the release. Book walker is like fully funding translations, but the rights to the translations belong to the original publishers. And book walker's goal for this initiative is to bring exposure to smaller publishing companies and help get more titles published in English outside of, outside of Japan. So, that's pretty cool. Uh, this light novel was debuted by Hoppy Japan writer Sao and artist Zaza in 2015. The sixth volume shipped out last year in December. And the story is about an ex-soldier who moves to a rural town to open a bakery. But he keeps scaring off the customers because he looks scary. So, just when he's about ready to give up, like a, a red-eyed, white-haired girl asks for a job at a shop. And, uh, she's a robot. Probably could make a fun anime one of these days. But yeah, that's, uh, it's cool that this new initiative is, uh, happening from Bookwalker first. And, uh, yeah, more light novels in English is pretty cool. Yep, light novels are definitely, um, selling these days. Um, seems to be a market for them. I guess just to move on to the next thing. Viz announced at, uh, C2E2 that they have licensed the Splatoon manga from Sankichi Hinodea. The first volume of that will be released in late 2017. So that's cool. Like I've I've never played Splatoon, but that's also because I don't I don't really play a lot of video games in general. But you know, I I could see Splatoon making for a really cute manga, honestly. Additionally, they're also going to release The Art of My Little Pony the movie in August and a Hello Kitty and Friends color book in October, as well as Castle in the Sky and Princess Minoke picture books in December. So some very kid-friendly books they're putting out that they announced. Splatoon, I haven't actually played it myself, but I like watching Wii Lord play it, because it seems like a lot of fun. I just don't play a lot of games myself outside of Pokemon. But yeah, cool, more video game manga. I think that they're... More Nintendo manga. Yeah, I think uh, the market's growing for that. And so moving on to some Kodansha licenses, the, some more digital exclusive licenses. We've got Days and Surgery Children, which are both already out and you can buy digitally through various online platforms, notably Comicsology. Days, of course, being notable as the soccer anime that uh, came out last summer season and the manga of which has been running for since 2013. Suradure Children is a four-panel manga dedicated to people who can't say I love you, which chronicles a series of short school romance stories in an ominous format and has been running online 
since 2012 and has been serializing in Shonen Magazine since 2015. So cool, some more Shonen Magazine titles are now available legally digitally. There you go. Pretty nice. Also coming from Kodansha is a re-release of the original Battle Angel Alita manga, which is going to be uh, re-released in hardcover 2-in-1 all in this volumes starting this holiday season. Wiz previously had the license to Alita, but let that lapse, and since then Kodansha has uh, taken up the licenses for the rest of the franchise, and now they're finally re-releasing the original Alita. And um, if I remember correctly, me listening to the One Piece podcast, I believe I heard uh, Stephen Paul, who translates the uh, the One Piece manga weekly in uh, in the Viz Shonen Jump, says uh, he will be retranslating that. Yes, so there's going to be new translations in this re-release as well. Pretty exciting. I have a few of the original Alita volumes, so it'll be interesting to compare with the new stuff. And you know, obviously, I have I've never read the original Battle Battle Angel Alita, but you know, with the new movie coming out probably soon, it's probably something I'm going to have to check out pretty soon. Now, on the subject of Kadansha, Kadansha Japan is recruiting staff to create what they're calling the largest scale manga application in history, a project they plan to launch at the end of 2017. As you know, Kodansha is the publisher of many shonen magazines, well, many magazines in general, Weekly Shonen Magazine, Young Magazine, Misatsu Shonen Magazine, uh, with several hits like Attack on Titan, Karkari Sakura, Fairy Tale, and so the, uh, they're recruiting some new developers, specifically application designers, system engineers, data analysts, media managers, and uh, applications can be made on the recruitment website until May 19th, so something big is going down at Kodansha Japan, probably has to do something with, like, a big digital push based on, like, who they're putting a call out for. Maybe. That sounds like a lot of work to preparing to do. Yep. Uh, another news. Area 88 creator Karu Shitani is taking a hiatus from manga, the announcement of which coincided with his 68th birthday uh, last Wednesday. And... And I announced it just as he finished the manuscript for the last chapter of his current manga, Christy London Massive. This news is noteworthy to me just because it seems like he's not taking a, he's not retiring, but he's just taking hiatus. And I only have read Area 88, <laughs> even then, only what has been legally translated. But yeah, I mean, I'm interested in a Shitani's manga, so it's, I just found it interesting that he, is taking a hiatus for a while before hopefully returning to make some more stuff. Oh, he did a uh, Young Miss Holmes. That's another manga of his that's legally available in English. I should, uh, I should read that sometime. That sounds like it could be fun. But I guess just to move on with the rest of our news. So, uh, we've got some, um, got some more circulation news to talk about. And this time, this is a pretty big one. So, uh, Weekly Shonen Sunday. Uh, announced that Gosho Aoyama, the creator of series such as Detective Conan, Magic Kaito, and uh, and Yaiba, um, amongst a lot of other work, I'm sure he's done with basically all of his series combined, make out to 200 million copies in print worldwide. And to commemorate this milestone, uh, Aoyama seems to be drawing new chapters of Magic Kaito finally. So that's that's pretty cool. I'm almost surprised that it wasn't just Detective Conan alone, but I guess, like, you know, Aoyama has a lot of other series under his belt, and uh, 
I guess it would make sense, especially with, uh, you know, including Conan in there, that uh, all of his series would uh, come out to such a large uh, circulation in print. I don't think it's surprising to me that it wasn't just Conan alone, based on what, what I remember of, like, what its uh, total gross numbers were. But, yeah, it's cool. Just like with Takahashi, uh, Iron Man has entered an exclusive club of Mangaka who was a body of works that sold collectively over 200 million copies. And I think that's something worth celebrating. Yeah, that's that's a lot of copies in print. It's very appropriate as the series nears its a thousand chapter. Oh my god, Conan's almost a thousand chapters. Oh, I still have so much to cover on One Podcast Prevails. Oh, <laughs> manga's never gonna end. But I guess that's not a bad thing, because I like Conan, but... <sighs> Man, the series is long. Anyway, what's next? <laughs> In the news of live-action films, Kids on the Slope is getting a live-action film. That's uh, basically all we know about it right now. It's just getting a film. No distinction about whether it's a Japan or Western adaptation? It's it's Japan. Yeah, I mean... Okay. I'd be surprised if it got a Western adaptation. It's not like hey, a, you never a know these days. Uh, Hollywood's like, hey, look, look at all this anime that these nerds are into. Let's make all the live-action movies out of them. But I could think of, like, several uh, series they tackle for, for Kids on the Slope. But Kids on the Slope is very good. I enjoy the anime immensely. Manga is also very good. So, cool. Uh, I think it will work very well in live action. It's a pretty grounded story. It doesn't require many fantastical elements. And uh, I think it actually could be communicated even better in live action as an adaptation. But to close the show off, we have a pretty uh, interesting new story. It involves censorship of manga and manga availability in Uh-oh. schools. So, mm-hmm. recently, in Jerome Middle School in Idaho, a student raised a concern about the uh, Sword Art Online Ancrad light novel in the library, raising concerns about, quote-unquote, inappropriate language and drawings in the novel. The National Coalition Against Censorship sent an appeal to Jerome Middle School on Monday, calling the school to retain the book, noting that the inappropriate drawings are presumably images of female character wearing underwear sharing a bed with main character, and stated that the removal of the book and these images could set a harmful precedent that... You know, any classic work of literature that contains adult language or art history type of that contains, like, nudes could be kept away from teens. So the school review committee, well, the school board reviewed the book, and the committee ultimately decided that they will keep the book in the school. And I'm like, you know, I'm mostly getting censorship of, like, books and comic books in particular, and uh, restricting the access to them. In, like, schools and stuff. But... Is Sword Art Online really worth it? Yeah, Sword Art... I mean, look, I mean, it's good that they kept it, because, yeah, it it would set a harmful precedent. But it's like, you gotta have mixed feelings about something like Sword Art Online, which, in many respects, does have subject matter that is inappropriate for middle schoolers, and (laughs) might downright be quite offensive. Yeah, so this is a light novel series... With a line of dialogue that says something along the lines of, and then he released a two years worth of semen or something. Yeah. The, the, the line was a lot funnier than how I just described it, but I don't know. Like, yeah, when I first saw this story, I was kind of like, I understand, you know, fighting against censorship and, and all that. I understand that, but it's like, 
like, it's Sword Art Online. Is it really worth it? Like, do middle schoolers really need to be reading Sword Art Online? Right. At the same time, though, I'm like, this kid who complained about it is such a narc, because he complained about, like, a female <laughs> character wearing undermare and sharing a bed with a main character. It's not like they're having sex. It's just the fact that, like, Ozuna was, like, wearing underwear. And the fact that she was in the same bed as Kirito was somehow so offensive to him. And I'm like, kid, grow up. To be fair, you know, like, you, you never know. He probably he probably grows up in, like, a very conservative household or whatnot. I'm sympathetic to that. It's just, uh, it's like, <laughs> the actual complaint is just so tame to me. Like, if it was complaining about the <laughs> two years worth of semen line, or, like, the scene where Asuka is getting tentacle raped, or, like, when, uh, you know... The, the villain of the second arc is, like, licking her face or whatever. It's like, yeah. It's like, if it was any one of those, I could say, yeah, that is uncomfortable. You know, that this is a yeah. book that maybe should be removed from the schools. But, like, <laughs> it's a cheap... It's just such a tame thing to complain about in the grand scheme of things. Yeah, like, you know, if this if this kid is, uh, you know, uncomfortable with seeing, you know, women in their underwear, then, yeah, I, 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 can't, I can only imagine how he would react to any of those other things that we just listed. Yeah. That probably <laughs> changes entire world. That was an interesting bit of news then. Uh... I would rather that Sword Art Online be removed than something like Dragon Ball. Yeah, or something like with really perverted content, but still has a very valuable and relatable message that is very worthwhile for kids to read. Something like Great Teacher Onizuka. Man, I wish we could talk about Great Teacher Onizuka. That's such a great series with such great messages and characters. Such a but wait a minute. We have someone to talk about Great Teacher Onizuka with. Oh wow. They're waiting. Right now, probably. We oh, have yeah. a whole discussion planned about not just Great Teacher Culture Onizuka, but the whole franchise. Oh, wow. I can't wait. Let's move on to the next thing. Great Teacher Onizuka. Strap on your motorcycles and get that driver's high. It's time to talk about Great Teacher Onizuka, the franchise. With us is our special guest, Nick Rowe from AllComic.com. How are you doing, Nick? You're What's up, guys? So, yeah, we're really happy to have you on today, Nick, especially since apparently you are a huge fan of GTO. Yeah, no, I'm big on GTO. Uh, <laughs> that franchise has been a big part of my life since the early 2000s. Um, so I'm happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me on, guys. Hey, no problem. Um, I guess uh, as far as where we want to start, I guess we could just start there um, with, uh, I guess, how we all got into GTO. And I feel like since Nick was alluding to it just now, uh, Nick, you want to talk about your history with the franchise and how you first got into it? Yeah, sure. So back in, I want to say like 2000, 2001, uh, my cousin went to Japan to visit friends and stuff over there. And uh, the, the one thing he brought back for me was GTO Volume 1 and 2. And, you know, he handed it to me and he's like, this is the most badass comic I've ever seen. And he opened he opened directly to that page where Onizuka is screaming at that dude in the the BMW in the first volume over trading his Air Max for for that dude's BMW so he can look cool on a date. 
And he's <laughs> like, this is the most ridiculous thing ever. It's crazy. And so, you know, I flipped through it. I couldn't read a, a word of Japanese at that point. But, you know, it, it just was so ridiculous and so crazy. And he started explaining all the, the background, like the, the fact that Onizuka was part of a Bosozoku back in the day before this comic starts and what that was and what like Yankee are and stuff like that. So that also got me started on those particular subcultures over in Japan, um, which I'm now completely obsessed with because <laughs> they're fantastic and incredible. But um, it's interesting after having learned a lot of that stuff and going back into GTO and seeing all the, the weird subtle stuff that Fujisawa puts in there. It's pretty cool. But anyway, so I continued to be interested in that stuff. I got through GTO, and then the GTO Tokyo Pop actually put the GTO anime out at first. So I was thrilled about that, and I dove into that and got way into it and showed it to my high school's anime club. <laughs> uh, and then I found out there was a TV drama. So I torrented all of that, or I, I found means that weren't on streaming services at that point. I don't know if you guys are anyway. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, I, I downloaded all of that and I, I didn't have high expectations, but it turned out to be really, really cool and really awesome. And then Tokyo shock released the GTO movie that was based off that drama. Oh, and okay. I got that. And, you know, so anytime something new GTO comes out, uh, you know, I'm generally interested, but you know, I, I, I managed to track down uh, Bad Company uh, a few years after because I saw that he had done that, and I got that, and then 14 Days in Shonen come, came out a number of years later, and, you know, I admittedly didn't pick that up because I, I read through it. I was like, this is... Uh. So, anyway, <laughs> definitely a lifelong fan of, of the, the whole franchise. So I keep forgetting. So is Bad Company, has that ever been licensed, or is that still unlicensed? No, it's, it's never been licensed by by anyone, oh, and okay. it probably never will be licensed. the The only reason we got fourteen days in Shonan, the part of the agreement for vertical licensing that was they had to finish publishing Shonan Janai Gumi. So that's why volumes like sixteen through the end came out from vertical, but they didn't do any of the backlog. That was part of the contract for getting fourteen days. Mm, yeah. So, uh, I, since you're such a big fan of Bozukozu culture and, like, uh, Yankee manga, uh, are you a fan of stuff like Roku Denashi Blues and Kyokar Orewa, too? Um, I'm actually not familiar with those, so I'm going to take a note and check those out later. Uh, but, no, I, I mean, I, I've gotten into stuff like Crows and Crow Zero and all that stuff. Um, man, I, I'm trying to think of other, other titles off the top of my head. Oh, yeah, like Cromarty High School. Oh my yeah. god, that uh, yeah. series is perfect. Yeah, I love Chrome. It's, <laughs> it's, <laughs> yeah, so. it's, that's interesting. So you got into a lot more of the other kind of Yankee stuff that was in magazine. I just find it interesting that Shonan Junagumi, Roka Denashi Blues, and Kirikara Orewa were all like Yankee manga that were running in Jump, Sunday, and Magazine at the same time. So it's kind of interesting to, you know, compare those series and think about them since they're all contemporaries. Mm -hmm. But to steer back into my history with GTO, it's pretty straightforward, I would think. Uh, when I started getting into the anime community 
back into it rather a little more around 2012 when Tanami came back and like that reignited my interest in watching more anime participating in communities again. That's when I joined Animation Revelation and a series that a lot of the members there are a huge fan of is GTL and the franchise as a whole. So kind of just getting recommendation from them, I checked out uh, the franchise a little bit, you know. I I also heard a little bit about it before from Heizu Otaku's review of it, back when she was, he was doing anime uh, reviews, but so I started, uh, the first, my exposure to it was, I picked up just some random volumes of 14 Days that was at the library, and read through it to get a taste of the franchise, and I Liked Onizuka as a character, kind of like the setup. So from there, I decided to read the original, and I, you know, went through the entire uh, GTO manga. And after that, uh, a couple years later, I watched the anime. I think it was it was a gap between finishing the manga and watching the anime. But uh, since getting into GTO, I've uh, read up on all the other side stories and spin-offs and I own all of Shonan Junaigumi finally after a two-year process of collecting them all but I only have just started reading it and only just finished the first volume recently but I've dabbled in all the franchise and I've also dabbled in Fujisawa's uh, body of work in particular and I have things to say about uh, Fujisawa's work and uh, the GTO franchise as a whole but as for GTO itself I am a fan and I really enjoy it. All right. Well, I guess I can just get started here because I I have a bit of a I have a bit of history with GTO and kind of a kind of a history with trying to like collect it or whatever. So I think for as long as I've been into manga, which I think at this point is definitely over ten years at this point. I, like I I actually started getting into manga around two thousand and six. I was in middle school at the time, and um, I think for as long as I've been into manga, I have seen GTO just. Every once in a while, I would, I'm pretty sure when Borders was still opened and when that was still a thing, and I still have one like um, 10 minutes away from where I lived, I would still, I'm pretty sure I've seen volumes at the Tokyo Pop release there every once in a while. And like, I would just, I would just kind of catch it everywhere. And like, for the longest time, I have been aware of GTO and I had been aware that people really liked this series. But I didn't really know anything about it, and I had always, like, it was always a series I had been always meaning to get to. And then, you know, when I finally started looking it up, you know, back in the day when I didn't have as much money to read manga, I would just read most of it online. And uh, I think uh, the reason I started buying and looking into trying to collect all the Tokyo Pop release of GTO was because... uh, I remember the scans I had found for GTO Online, I didn't think were very uh, pleasing to look at. Like, I don't, I tried re-looking them up again, and I don't know if I'm just not looking in the right places anymore or whatnot, but the scans I had found for GTO, I don't know who, I don't know who was responsible for them, I don't know what group did them or whatever, but the these particular scans I had found, like, they would color in the speech bubbles and stuff, and they would all be, like, really, what? Uh, like, ugly colors and shit, like, like blues and pinks and it was just i was like why why does it look like this so that was when i thought you know maybe i'd rather just buy this and um a years later at my local mall you know at our little like mon pa anime store or whatever they had pretty much all of gto for like five bucks a volume 
So for like a year, I would just go up there every once in a while and like just start collecting whatever GTO they had because it's like five bucks a volume. That's a, that's a pretty good deal in my opinion. Um, so I eventually collected all of GTO that way. And um, it's also worth noting that uh, uh, I guess we'll probably talk about it a little bit. But, uh, you know, a, a big thing about me getting into GTO was that uh, – at that point, the only experience I had had with Tokyo Pop was I'd actually read all of their release of uh, Wraith Master. I had that in my high school's library. And uh, that was all the experience with Tokyo Pop I had had. So, you know, I had seen around that, like, people were really shitting on Tokyo Pop. And I I honestly had no idea why. And then, you know, when I started collecting GTL, I finally got all of it. And I started, you know, reading it, you know, tweeting about it on Twitter or whatever. You know, that's when Nick started to tell me about uh, why people exactly were uh, shitting on Tokyo Pop because of uh, really a lot of reasons. But one of them being that, uh, like, Tokyo Pop's actual uh, work, their actual releases just weren't really that great in general in terms of, like, translation, uh, quality, um, and all that kind of stuff. So it it was kind of sobering to hear that, you know, I had basically spent probably over $100 on this collection of GTO that... uh, you know, from a company that uh, apparently nobody likes. So I was kind of upset about that at first. Um, but I was like, you know, this this still might be scanlation quality, I guess. But like, I would rather still read Tokyo Pop's release than whatever scans I had found online like years and years and years ago. Yeah, you probably made the right call. Like as bad as Tokyo Pop's translations are, the scans of GTO weren't a whole lot much better. I mean, yeah. I just read, tried reading Bad Company, the Scanlations recently, and, uh, oof, yeah, the, those are, the, the typesetting, the font, like, the grammatical errors, like, you know, Tokyo Pop is bad, and it's unacceptable quality for a publisher, but they're still better than scan, than a terrible Scanlation like that <laughs> at, at the end of the day. I mean, they were basically hiring scanlators, but in reality, they were hiring a lot of like college students and paying them basically nothing to translate that stuff. And, I remember and, pictures yeah. of. Oh, sorry, go for it. No, I was just gonna say, and, and their work shows for like probably the first half of the of the series because you know I would constantly tweet about how like because you you could tell like when they replace the Japanese text with, like, English text, they don't bother, like, redrawing any of the space in which the Japanese text was occupying, so you could still see, like, hints of, like, where the hiragana was, and, like, some of where, like, the chapter titles are supposed to be, and it's, like, it's it's really shoddy work. GTO was an early uh, entry into Tokyo Pop's format change, too, so I, that was, like, one of their one of their first titles when they went to the standard, like, manga, the, the Tonkoban Digest size. Ah, uh, yes, and they were so proud of themselves with the, at the back <laughs> of the bottom they had this logo calling Leading the Manga Revolution. They kind of did, but they, uh, well, anyway. <laughs> we can talk about that when we talk about Tokyo Pop, but Oh boy. <laughs> yeah, I I I get the feeling that Tokyo Pop could probably fill an entire episode of a podcast. Mhm. There's a lot to talk about from a lot of different angles and Stu Levy the or Levy or whatever the uh the guy who runs it is a very charismatic, very nice guy, but he is the shadiest guy <laughs> in the universe. Oh. Super shady. <laughs> 
Yeah. Wow, that's really interesting to hear. So, so yeah, I I basically collected all of GTO, and you know, I had seen that uh, Sid wanted to do an episode about GTO, and I was like, oh well, uh, I guess it's a good thing I suddenly collected all of GTO. I guess we'll talk about it. So, I read all of it, and uh, I guess that leads up to our recording the show today, and. And I, I've read all of GTO at this point, and I haven't really dabbled into too many of other Fujisawa's entries in the franchise. Like, I've never read Bad Company. Um, I have two volumes of um, of Shonan Junai Gumi, otherwise known as the early years. Um, I'm definitely going to start collecting that whenever I can. Um, so I've, I've basically, like, flipped through that, um, but I haven't actually read it. And then I basically haven't read any of the other spinoffs or side stories that have come after gto um i've seen a little bit of the anime like maybe 10 episodes or so a friend of mine actually is a is a big gto fan um and by big gto fan i mean she's she's seen the anime and she really loves that but she hasn't actually like read any of the manga um but she also really likes the um so so um i guess confirm something for me nick because i feel like i'm gonna get this wrong so you mentioned um you had um torrented uh i guess the drama for gto so was there a drama that it aired back in the day and then because i because i know there's a drama on crunchyroll that like just recently was produced and released like i think as far back as 2011 that's the taiwanese drama the the one i watched was the one that was coming out while the comic was coming out in the early 2000s okay okay that was the first one they did and you know there's it's just it's so good and they they barely use the actual stories from the comic but the guy playing Onizuka is perfect you know the 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 woman playing Fuyutsuki is perfect like it's just it's a really well done series Hmm. Cool. I'll, have to, I'll have to go look for that. That sounds really awesome, actually. Yeah, and you can tell that GTO was like popular from the start because that drama came out only a little uh, more than a year after GTO started in magazine. Um, it, GTO started in 1997, and the drama came out in 1998. So, wow. yeah, it was a fast turnaround there. So GTO was kind of like an immediate success. I think uh, we should go and give a little bit of background on GTO as a franchise. Sure. So GTO is created by mangaka called Toru Fujisawa. He is 50 years old as of this year, actually. And uh, he he has mainly worked for Kadansha and specifically has serialized most of his titles in Weekly Shonen Magazine. His first work, which was short-lived, was called uh, Aretsugara Junjo Boy which was a story about a boy who was raised like a girl by his parents to succeed in the traditional uh, theater of the uh, family where a male actor needed to act like a woman. So that manga was short-lived. So, you know, I might check it out because I, I like gender vendors, but uh, his it's, main... It's weird. <laughs> <laughs> it's really weird. <laughs> but... Yeah, his main success came shortly after finishing Aretsugata when he started up Shonan Junaigumi in 1990. And that ran for 31 volumes, six years, very successful series. And after that, he did a short uh, one-volume work called Bad Company, which was a prequel to Shonan Junaigumi, which told the story of how Ikichi and Ryuji met and before they formed the Onibaku. And then finally, uh, GTO started later in 1996. And that was 
clearly a huge hit right out of the gate. And yeah, that ran for about six years, 25 volumes. And then Fujisawa did some other works after that, uh, like Rose Hip Rose. But he came back to the GTO franchise in 2009 for the 14 days in Shonan, which ran for about two years. And then since then, he keeps making new spin-offs and side stories. Uh, you know, Head Gargoyle came out in 2012, and that ran until 2014 for about five volumes. And that was about uh, Saijiyama, the uh, Onizuka's friend who became a police officer. And then Ryuji got his own uh, spinoff called GTR, which was just a one-volume work. And then now, currently, uh, Fujisawa is doing GTO Paradise Lost, which began in 2014 and is actually serializing in Young Magazine. Instead of Shonen Magazine. So that's been going on. And uh, yeah, it seems like the franchise keeps having a lot of longevity. Because in addition to Fujisawa just creating more spinoffs and sequels. You know, it keeps getting like new adaptations. Like that aforementioned uh, Taiwanese drama. That came back in 2014. And there have been plenty of dramas over the years as well. So uh, GTO is a very popular franchise. And I think to delineate the kind of the difference between Shonen Jumaigumi and GTO is that you can kind of make the comparison between Dragon Ball and Dragon Ball Z because GTO is like the internationally the far more well-known and successful work akin to Dragon Ball Z, whereas uh, the early stuff, Shonen Jumaigumi, is lesser known and uh, less popular internationally, even though it is actually longer than GTO itself. But it's also, you can also make a comparison because it's more comedy focused and uh, there's a lot of uh, dick jokes and sex jokes in it. <laughs> so, it's yeah. like the entire series is about uh, Onizuka and Yuichi uh, trying to get laid. Yeah. Like, and not very subtle terms. Oh, yeah. Uh, there's some, they get, they pop some gigantic boners in their face. And uh, it's, it's amazing the content standards uh, back in Shonen Magazine back then. Like, even now, Shonen Magazine is the raunchiest of the Shonen Magazines. I mean, they uh, are not afraid of showing a lot of TNA, but, oh boy, the the stuff that they pulled in Shonen Junaigumi, man. <laughs> I'm, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty sure when I was flipping through the first volume of Shonen Junaigumi that I kept coming across a few pages where uh, Onizuka's in, like, a body cast, and you can see his boner through the body cast. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah. That's really great. <laughs> oh, boy. But I guess, yeah, was there anything else you wanted to touch on, Sid? Now, that's the background of GTO as a franchise. So I think now we can dig into GTO itself, what it's about, and what makes it so good. Yeah, so uh, what is what, what is GTO about, Sid? GTO follows Onizuka who at the beginning of the series is about 22 years old. He's kind of grown up a little bit from his Shonan Junaigumi days as a delinquent, like, punk guy. But, you know, he's still a pervert, and he's still a virgin. And, uh, like, he's still super horny and wants to really get laid. So he comes up with this great idea of becoming a high school teacher so he can get with the students. Because he hears stories about how teachers get laid a bunch. So <laughs> he does that, but then uh, ends up teaching at a middle school instead. And ultimately just 
kind of connects with the kids and actually does like start helping them out a lot. And so, you know, he's still trying, he's, he moves on to trying to get into, uh, a, a fellow teacher's pants instead of his students. And he actually does like embrace the idea of becoming a great teacher because he kind of finds his calling in it. Although his methods are unorthodox, to put it lightly. But most unorthodox. Yes. Uh, if you talk, Koro Sensei was an unorthodox teacher. Uh, the original GTO was, uh, I mean, he, he pulled off some pretty crazy stunts and he was a human being. So I think that's as good as transition as to any into, um, I, I wasn't expecting to start off with this, but, uh, just kind of going into my thoughts as somebody who's only read GTO and nothing else. Um, that was actually something I was, um, cause I'll admit, I think for probably the first, I want to say roughly like around 10 volumes or so, um, I did not hate GTO, but there were some aspects about it that I just couldn't find myself getting into, like the whole, you know, Onizuka wanting to become a teacher so he could get with the students. Um, I, I get that it, this might be just me, but I I thought that was a little weird, but I guess I guess back in the 90s, that was something that was supposed to be really funny or something. I don't know. That might be just me being a prude. I don't know. It's kind of scuzzy, but it's hard not to just laugh at Onizuka's antics. This is true, yes. You know know he's not going to succeed. And I'm sure if you've read Shonan Junagumi, you know he's not going to succeed. But... So it's just enjoyable to, like, see him, like, salivate over this idea of getting with high school girls. But you know it's going to be unattainable for him. He's not actually ever going to actually go through with it. So it's kind of, like, more harmless in that respect. But, you know, it is, in, in many cases, a little uncomfortable. Especially, uh, there are some moments where he does cross a line with his students, like... Very early on, when he's like sp- he spanks Anko and his and her friends and like writes on their underwear and stuff, you know it's it's goofy and funny, but uh, that's that's sexual <laughs> harassment. No two ways about it. Or when he summons the local chapters of the Bosozoku and straight up tortures three guys in a park. <laughs> yeah, you know that's uh, that's totally normal teacher behavior, you know? <laughs> you know, actually, I forgot to mention, my friend had shown me the anime first, and I was like, you know, I was enjoying it, but, like, for some reason, I, I couldn't get past, like, how the anime looked, because, to me, it looked kind of cheap in some places, Um, so, like, I, d- I didn't think it looked very appealing, which is another reason why I wanted to read the manga, because I thought I would enjoy the art in the manga more. Um, to an extent, I was kind of right, but sometimes the art can be a little cluttered in a few places in the beginning. But I think Fujisawa gets a lot better about that later. Um, but just going back to that, to, uh, what Nick was mentioning, I think that was the moment where, um, I didn't, I didn't expect that at all. I, I didn't see, I guess I didn't expect Onizuka's actions in that, in the beginning. Like, that was one of those moments where I thought, like, oh, it was gonna go another way. But then Onizuka does a complete 180 and completely, like, bashes whatever expectations I had for whatever, however he was going to, like, handle the situation there. So that was when I thought, okay, this is a series that I could like. Mm-hmm. Um, so I really appreciate that. <laughs> um, yeah, no, he's a thug to the core. That's like, <laughs> they, they, they don't try and hide that at all. And he does, it, you know, in the beginning, he tries to be, like, a straight-up legit teacher. 
And then it backfires on him, and then that scene happens, and he's like, wait a minute, I can be a teacher and be a thug and make it work? This is genius, you know? <laughs> um, but yeah, I guess just going back to originally what I wanted to say, um, uh, a criticism that I kind of had of GTO for basically the first half of the series was that, you know, Onizuka's hired to be this teacher, but like, the, I guess... Uh, the thing that kind of bothered me about it the most and, you know, something that I gradually became less and less, like, I guess, worried about as the series went on, because I, I kind of understand the point of everything going on and why he was hired and everything. But at first, uh, Onizuka being hired as, an, as a teacher kind of bothered me because it felt like it felt like he wasn't really like teach. Obviously, it didn't feel like to me he was really teaching his students anything. Like, because there be there are times when like Onizuka will just be in class, just dressed up as whatever. Like he dresses up as Devilman at one point, um, which is pretty great. And then um, he dresses up in a very like uh, I guess I don't know how you want to call it erotic elephant costume. Yeah, elephant costumes very iconic. <laughs> <laughs> um, so some of that stuff is funny, but like. What kind of bothered me at first was I was kind of, I was kind of expecting there to maybe be like an, like a character arc where maybe like not only, cause I appreciate, you know, Onizuka being, I guess, sort of the bridge between teacher and student and eventually having his students being able to like trust him and whatnot. And a lot of that stuff is great. Um, but when I was first starting, when I was first reading GTO, I was kind of hoping that, like, maybe Onizuka could, like, also learn from his students about how to actually maybe teach his class. Like, uh, does that make any sense? Well, he kind of does. One thing I really love about GTO is that Onizuka and his students form a real connection, and he helps them out and corrects their behavior when, like, they're going astray. And they, in turn, when he is kind of astraying, you know, from... Uh, fr from his own character and like gets blinded by greed or money or whatever and loses sight of you know what's important like they steer him back on the right pack too so there's like this very mutual beneficial bond they uh forms through the manga and i think that's really the emotional core of it and the lessons onizuka is teaching his students aren't like really academic or like he, he's not teaching them like information but he's teaching them to be better people and to like yeah. be more confident in themselves you know but he's he's also making an investment in their like psychological well-being because you know time and time again he brings up these teachers who would just call him scum and you know call him nut and, you know worthless and whatnot and you know that that really affected him. That that put him on his path. So the the fact that he goes so far out of his way to engage with his students on such a personal level is him trying to correct the the wrongs of his own past. You know, and that's what that's the core of his endearment right there. Exactly. That there's. Um, I mean. That's set up very early on when he first meets Uchi Yamada, and like Uchi Yamada chews him out when he, at the when he was uh, when he's applying for the job and tells him like he's trash, he's scum and stuff. And then later when Onizuka is talking to Sakurai, you know, he tells her like stuff like saying stuff like that to kids really messes them up. And if he becomes ever became a teacher, he's going to make sure that his kids won't ever be subjected to that kind of verbal abuse. And that he would try and steer them in the right direction. And that's really the heart of what Onizuka is trying to do. 
Yeah. But also, it's there, there's an interesting social criticism going on in a lot of the comic too. I mean, le- less so in the later later volumes when it just turns into pure drama. But kind of really early on, you know, the the whole Uchiyamada character is is all about this weird political hierarchy that goes on in Japanese education where like diet members get phased out of the diet and then they become education ministers and they say, well, this is how education should be. Even if they've never spent a day of their life working in education, they get, they get put in these positions. So people who are in charge of a lot of the aspects of education over there you know, they they may not necessarily be the best people to be doing it. And the way education is shaped is is not necessarily in the best interest of the students. So Onizuka also represents this other side that, like, education should be about enriching the students and not about what some old fart decides is best for, is best for students based on something, you know? Yeah, Jihiro does have a very harsh critique of the Japanese education system and like the idea of social of the hierarchy within it that seeks just for like career advancement over like the welfare of the students. And I think that's a problem that's systematic in education systems across the world. And it's also like a resentment that kids feel towards like the education system across the world, which I think is partly why GTO has this widespread international beer and it's so resonant. Yeah, I, I can yeah, definitely I can totally agree with that. Um, yeah, I, I do just want to say, like I said earlier, whatever criticisms I had about Onizuka as a character and whatever uh, character arc I thought he should go through, I quickly became less and less adamant about those as I as I kept reading through the series mostly because I like I, I finally was kind of starting to understand uh what the series was going for and like how these characters work and whatnot because that that was another thing too when I was first reading the series was um because in the beginning um obviously a lot of Onizuka's class class four are so terrible to him and they do all this terrible shit to him like you know uh, forge like risque photos of him and plaster him all over the school, spread rumors about him, try to constantly get him fired. And, you know, a lot of that just left me wondering, like, what the hell did teachers do to these kids to make them, like, act like this? And, you know, for the longest time, I was afraid that, like, I was afraid that wasn't going to be explored, but thankfully it is. And, oh boy, um, <laughs> let's just say the second half of the series for me, I think, is probably my favorite i i definitely prefer the second half to the first half because you know not again not that i didn't think the first half was funny in places but it was just a lot of like me being like i want i want to know the story behind these kids i want to know what exactly happened to make him this way because that to me that's what great teacher onizuka is all about is basically just a story of a group of kids who were burned by adults in some way shape or form and them learning to be able to just trust adults again, which I think is very gripping and endearing. Yeah, I mean, I would agree with you that when I was reading the series for the first time, I did start to get tired of it, like, towards the middle, and I was feeling it was getting very repetitive, but uh, some of the more dramatic arcs in the second half really picked me back up. Being a little more distant from uh, the manga in, uh, now and just, you know, going back to the anime a lot more, a lot of the first half of the, of the series is a lot more ingrained in my memory and a lot 
And it's easy, and like, I can like think about all my favorite moments a lot more readily from that first half. Whereas I, you know, I just haven't gone back to the second half of the manga in a while. But like, I do agree that I think that, uh, at some point, you know, when GTO starts shifting to more, more dramatic arcs and really starts digging into like, you know, what has scarred some of these students a little more is particularly Miyabi and Urumi. Uh, that's when it really starts, you know, really veering back on the right track and, uh, yeah, yeah. becomes a lot more engaging as a dramatic narrative. Um, what, what, what do you, what do you think about? Uh, these opinions, Nick, because, uh, I remember when I was, um, when I was first reading GTO and tweeting about it, you had told me that, um, the series kind of gets pretty repetitive at some points, uh, later. And I, which I thought was kind of interesting because I really felt like, um, I felt like even pretty early on, like even as far as like, uh, I don't know, like not even 10 volumes in, I was feeling like, man, this is like the fourth time Onizuka's had to save a kid from jumping off a building. I'm totally not tired of this trope uh, yet or whatever. That storytelling device in particular was was kind of grating on me a little bit because like I think it was around the point when uh, when Udumi is introduced as a character and we start uh, spending time with her um when she i think uh that moment when she when onizuka accidentally bumps her off the roof i i I felt a little robbed of like whatever emotional attachment i was supposed to have for that moment but i but i guess it uh, like you know to counter my own point once again it also you know that that moment kind of becomes more comedic as it goes on because it leads into this whole thing where onizuka's trying to get rid of now a presumably dead body and it goes so far as to even like uh bury the body in like mount fuji or whatever which which was all pretty funny but uh, i really felt by that point in the story that i was getting kind of tired of that setup in particular i don't know i I mean i think the first 13 or 14 volumes of the series is really where the core where the core of the series is i i get what you're saying about the the latter half that he really gets more into the direct drama and into the backstory of of these students but you know, honestly, I didn't feel like that was a story that really necessarily needed to be laid out like that. Like, you know, some some things sometimes are be- better left unsaid, right? So when you get into the story and when you get into the, the, the later latter half of the series, it just felt way too melodramatic and, and felt it felt forced in a lot of places that, that like he was trying to shift it away from comedy more to drama and the comedy, while it was still actively present, wasn't necessarily as as like good or thought out. Whereas in the beginning of the series, the comedy kind of leads into the drama, and the drama leads into the comedy, and it was this more organic experience. So, I mean, I do agree that that the the latter half has some really engaging moments. But the the first half, I think, is really where the the series the series shines. And yeah, it does get repetitive in places like the the you know you were saying the the jumping off buildings aspect of it. But at the same time, you know the pranks that they're that, that, that they're pulling and Onizuka's like problem solving mentality in in those early chapters too is just really unique and creative and fun and. I don't know. I, I it just I, I started to lose interest later on, but I still enjoyed it. In the end, it just didn't feel like the same comic anymore. You know. 
Yeah, I can understand that perspective because it does lose, uh, it does have kind of a tonal whiplash problem when it starts to veer into the more dramatic stuff. I do think though that I feel, I did feel like it got, I got a little tiring 10 volumes in or whatever, you know, so back when I was initially reading it. So I remember like just feeling like I wanted just something to shake things up and like, you know, change the status quo. And, like, after the Okinawa arc, when uh, Sakurai's grandson comes in, like, after that point, we start getting, like, uh, some more, like, uh, dramatically engaging arcs. And that kind of pulled me back into reading it a little, uh, for the rest of the run. But I agree with you that, like, the most iconic and memorable parts of GTO are in the first half. And it's, I kind and, like, so... I think that's kind of why I'm, like, very comfortable nowadays. Just when I want to revisit GTO, I just watch the anime. For a variety of other reasons, too, I kind of just go back to anime over the first half of the manga, but, like, the first half of the story, just in general, is I do kind of agree that is kind of, like, the core GTO in terms of, like, the most iconic parts of it. Yeah, I can see that. Sakurai's grandson is a is a good example of, of what I'm talking about. Like, the kids in the beginning are just really upset, you know? Uh, uh, Urumi, to an extent, is, is a little bit like, like Sakurai's grandson, but... Sakurai's grandson is just an anarchist, like, and that, and that's when it starts to kind of like spin off the rails. But you know, in the beginning, you know, the 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 kids, their destruction and their their like bad behavior and stuff, kind of has a purpose and kind of has has a reason. And Sakurai, you know, he's he's got his reasons, but at the same time, it's like, how explosive can we make this? Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know. Yeah, but I guess so just to say, yeah, I think the Okinawa arc was pretty much the arc where I kind of became the most invested into the series. Uh, that yeah. that that is that is a lot of great moments, especially with uh, Noboru. I think is the MVP of this entire series. Honestly, if we're if we're just being honest here, because he's he's one of the first kids. Not only he's not only one of the first kids that Onizuka helps out, but uh, you really feel like he's there for most of for most of Onizuka's journey, like, and you really feel like, you know, Noboru kind of becomes a more admirable, better person, thanks to Onizuka's, um, I guess, uh, influence. I mean, they're besties. Yoshikawa definitely has, like, the, one of the most, like, emotionally satisfying arcs of the students, for sure. And definitely that trip to Okinawa really kind of culminates in him, like, standing up for himself and, uh, you know, coming into his own, so... I definitely also agree that the Okinawa arc is like probably my favorite part of GTO as well, because it just has a lot of fun moments and uh, a lot of emotional satisfying moments too. And I especially like how um, his relationship with uh, Anko plays out, because uh, man, uh, did they uh, did they not uh, have it pretty good in the beginning? But some I don't know how their relationship turned out the way it did almost, but I'm I'm really glad they're they kinda have a thing together because I think it's kinda cute. I was somewhat uncomfortable that, you know, they start a relationship considering all the horrible things Anko did to him. But it ends up working out and like I, I can buy into it because of like the stuff that, you know, happened in the Okinawa arc and the time they spent together and got and spent getting to know each other a little better. And also something I really like about Onizuka as a character is um I really like how you know he'll he'll stand up against the teachers when they're obviously in the wrong for calling their students uh, trash or whatever 
but I also like during the Mayu arc when he ends up arm wrestling all those guys at the club. I like how that kind of turns on its head where, you know, in that situation, you know, all those people who were either expelled or suspended from school or whatever are kind of in the wrong. And Onizuka's basically like, hey, well, you know what? It's your life. You got to uh, do it, do with it how you can, you know, like it's, it's not always the teacher's faults or whatever. Like you like it's it's your life, you know, got to do what you yeah. can with it. And I, I really appreciated uh, those moments as well, how. You know, it's, it's, you know, it's not, it's not always like one side over the other that's always wrong. Like both, sometimes, most of the time, both sides are kind of in the wrong. Right. He's very sympathetic to the students, but when they're acting out of line, he does like, you know, chastise them and correct their behavior a little bit and like prove like they need to take responsibility for themselves in a lot of ways. Like when Anka was uh, trying to get back at Onizuka for like taking pictures of her and stuff, you know, where he he was trying to get back for Yoshikawa. So when Ako, like, got her mother involved and tried to get Unizuka fired, and, like, then the truth came up, and then Anko was just, like, yelling at her mother, saying, like, you know, this is your fault that I turned out like this. You were never there for me. Like, Onizuka tells her, shut up, Yuhara. Like, take some responsibility for yourself and your own actions. That's what adults do, you know? So... There are moments like that in the series where Onizuka, like, kind of shows the kids, like, their other ways and, like, that their actions will have consequences and they need to take responsibility for themselves and, like, how they want to be and how they want their lives to be. Mm -hmm. And, uh, like I said, Onizuka teaches these kids important life lessons, which is more valuable than, like, just any random information factoids to cram for tests and get high test scores. Mm Mm-hmm. I guess uh, while we're still kind of on the subject, um, I know we all kind of have our mixed feelings about the second half of uh, of GTO, but uh, do you guys happen to have any arcs from that second half that you think you that either like kind of stand out to you or you think you really like the most? Or There's this one arc where Arumi's in trouble and she's like, you know, about going to commit suicide or whatever. And like, you know, Onizuka... Uh, he's like, you know, rushing to, you know, go to her and stuff. And like, I remember this moment where like, he's like obsessed with this one thing, like about that it has to do with his own reputation forever. And Mariah's like, what's wrong with you, man? You're, why are you thinking this way? And that kind of like brings Onizuka kind of back to his senses a bit. And that's what I'm kind of talking about. I like that, you know, when, when Onizuka corrects the students when they kind of, steer off the wrong pack, but the students also, you know, correct him as well. And I believe Uchi Yamada also, you know, really came around in that arc as well, in his own ways. Yeah, I actually, Uchi Yamada was a really interesting character for me, because, like, I really went back and forth between being really against him, sympathizing him, being against him again, and that, that Uchi Yamada's character was kind of a roller coaster for me. <laughs> He, he's lo- he's extremely lovable to hate because you can sympathize with the fact that, you know, he wants to be with his family and wants to be closer to them and stuff. But like, you know, the stuff he does can be so despicable sometimes. Like he is openly perverted and he thinks of oh, the students as trash. And like he's like Onizuka helps him become a better teacher in person, even though it takes a while for Uchi Yamada to 
kind of warm up to him. And even in the end, he, he really still doesn't like him all that much, but he gains some modicum of respect for him. And of course, the crested gag is classic and never gets old. <laughs> I I do I do want to give a shout out to the anime for having um for having Cho the voice of Brook in One Piece voice uh, Uchi Yamada because I really think he to to me he is Uchi Yamada. Uh, he just does a, such a great job of bringing that character to life. It's impossible to hear to hear him do voice acting in other series and not think of Uchi Yamada. It's like. <laughs> that, that's that's a permanent association for me. <laughs> um, yeah, I really felt like um, I I really liked that part of the arc where um, you know Uchiyabada just keeps going on and on and on throughout like the latter half of that arc with Udumi about just his position and oh what's going to happen to me and oh what about my family and my position and whatever and it felt so satisfying to see Onizuka finally just roundhouse kick him in the face. Yeah, because uh, that's I like the entire latter half of the arc. Because you know, like I, I felt like I felt like the uh, the audience insert there for a second. Like that's that's what I want to do. I want to punch him in the face. Because god damn it, every time uh, there are sometimes in GTO where like it'd be a chapter with just Uchiyamada, and it's just so much text to read, and I hated it so much. Um, mm. so I, I for a while I I just hated it when Uchiyamada talked. Because that would just mean more reading for me. Um, <laughs> but uh, you know, like his character is really, to me, I think becomes legitimately interesting around that point because Uchiyamada, at the end of the day, is just a man who who had good intentions, who wanted to be a proper educator, and then you know he became this this cynical old man, and it just became all about protecting himself and protecting his position and just making sure he had money or whatever. Um, and I just I, I thought that aspect about his character was interesting, and I really liked where that arc took his character, which makes me sad that like I I I, I do agree I I do think he kind of likes Onizuka a bit more, but a part of me couldn't help but think that like I don't know I I personally felt like his character sort of regressed a little bit because like it like things just kind of went back to normal with him about. You know, it it kind of went back to his old shtick about you know giving Onizuka shit about whatever and you know, him worrying about his crester or whatnot. Um, that's just me personally. But, you know, like overall, I, I think I enjoyed Uchiyamada's character a lot more than I was expecting to. Uh, so that was a really nice surprise. Um, and as long as we're talking about this arc, uh, that entire arc with Udumi and the more we learn about her home life and how she was conceived, um, I, I don't know why that brought upon such strong feelings with me, because I think around that point where you find out that she she was basically, as they put it, a test tube baby, like she was she was basically artificially inseminated, like she wasn't conceived out of like any kind of like loving relationship or whatever. She was just conceived basically because it'd be convenient for her mother, which um I think really rubbed me the wrong way when I first read that. Like uh, when I. During that arc, there were a lot of times where I had to put the book down and just kind of pace around because I was actually, like, getting really angry. Because, I don't know, somehow that just really rubbed me the wrong way and it brought this, like, real angry emotion out of me. Um, and I I really wasn't expecting that, um, reading this stupid comic about a teacher who wants to get laid. Yeah, for me, stories about families and relationships between parents and children... Uh 
really affect me, probably because of my own relationship with my family. So, like, stories like that about, like, Arumi feeling like she was not born out of love, her mother doesn't love her, and, like, there's this just coldness in the relationship, you know, that definitely really got to me as well, and I definitely really... Because there, there's a I, point where, there's a point where, like, uh, Udemy tells her mother that, you know, if you weren't ready to have a kid, maybe you shouldn't have had me, and I thought that was gonna lead into a whole, like, thing where it's like, oh, no, you don't, no, your mother loves you after all, and you just don't understand, she does all this for you, but I, I love the misdirection where it turns out, no, like, Udemy was kind of right, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, in where, you know, she basically had her, you know, just because it'd be convenient for her. She used another stooge to work on her stark stock markets or whatever she was working on. Yeah, it's very yeah. despicable, you know, to conceive a child just to use it. So I think that really got to me, particularly. Um, what were you going to say, Nick? I was going to say, she, she, honestly, she's one of the most endearing characters in the series for me. Like, I think she's probably one of my favorites. And, you know, the, the whole explanation of... of how she got to be the way she is it was it was honestly heartbreaking and like you kind of get the sense like oh this is why she's lawful evil like you know i don't know i i do agree that that was one of the more endearing parts of the of the second half and and you know the the fact that she got to be more fleshed out and you know that that is one of those cases where you know, maybe knowing, maybe the story being told is worth telling. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, you know, I don't know. I, I, I definitely agree with you guys on that one. Um, I guess what about? Uh, I definitely want to talk about this a little bit. Um, how do we all feel about the subplot with Tetsu Gawara and Miss Fuyutsuki? I, you know, honestly, I barely remember how that ends. Like, I remember, like in the what one way he's like in the sewers or whatever. And there's no, you're, you're thinking. You're thinking of the English teacher. Okay. Yeah. Tetsu- oh, yes. the, yeah. I mean, Teshigawara is like the really like pompous guy who thinks he's like also smart and whatever. But yeah. he has this really perverted kind of fantasy with Fuyutsuki, and he also is like being dominated by a student. Like he's homeroom tutoring, and so he has this like weird sexual fetish thing going on. Yeah. Uh, you know, he hates Omizuka because you know. He's like this, uh, he's an elite graduate of Tokyo U or whatever, and Onizuka says doesn't have much of an educational background, but Azusa like likes Onizuka more and stuff, but, uh, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, Teshi Gawara, uh, his character was really interesting because I definitely despised him as I think we all should, but I feel like his character, his character is also more interesting the more you learn about his background because he obviously comes from a very strict family who had uh, a lot of plans for his future and what he should grow up to be. And I thought a lot of that was really interesting. And I wasn't, I wasn't expecting a lot of that. And I think the great thing about it is I don't necessarily sympathize with the character, but I think, I think from, from the way, from his adolescence and the way he grew up, I think a lot of his actions in the present make so much sense. And I can, I, I kind of like how his character comes around uh without to to me i didn't feel like it was as much of a well well maybe it was supposed to be a sob story but like i personally didn't like entirely sympathize with him because again it's it's one of those things 
where Onizuka says, it's like, you know, it's it's your life, you should take responsibility for it. I think GGO is very good at building up the backstories of all its characters and make you understand how they became the way they are without erasing their guiltiness in what they have done. And like, uh, basically, like, it doesn't excuse, there's the word I need, excuse the fact of what they have done. Exactly. You know, you can, you can empathize with why they became the way they did in most cases. Uh, in most cases, <laughs> not in his case, man. I, I, I don't agree that like, like his backstory. Yeah, it was pre- it was a well, pretty, I can understand. Pretty horrible backstory. I don't, but... I don't like him, but I understand. No, yeah, I, I still like him, but I, I think, I, I think his actions make more sense just because of the more you learn about his mentality. Also, empathize doesn't mean sympathize. Empathize is just you can understand from emotional perspective like why someone is doing what they're doing you can like it's not like you sympathize with them it means like you you feel compassion for them empathy is just you can understand them so i yeah not using that incorrectly there i i don't know i i i actually when you were talking about what our favorite segments from the uh from the second half where i was going to bring this this whole story arc up because i felt like all of a sudden GTO turns from this lighthearted comedy into a psychological thriller, like out of nowhere. <laughs> and I, I don't know. I thought, I thought it was a, an, a kind of neat tone shift, and and like, and the the fact that it, it gets like it gets really serious really quickly, and you know the the jokes kind of stop stop flying as much in that one. But man, Teshigawara is like, you know, Fujisawa is is good at making characters that you like. But if he really wants you to dislike a character, oh, he goes in, you know? E- even after learning his backstory, I left that story arc just nope, 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 nope. Teshigawara is all nope. <laughs> I I totally understand that, too, because he's... Because I, I think at the end of the day, even with, like, the resolution of his character arc, I guess, I can still understand just utterly despising the character, because he does, he does still go through... Um, uh, through many lengths to try to kidnap Azusa and try to basically make her marry him and all that creepy stuff. Yeah, and I mean, we're talking about a series where there's a guy wearing a gas mask with a recorder and a clear umbrella going under the girls' stalls to, like, record them going to the bathroom. So there's some disgusting characters in this series, but Teshigawara is uh, is top tier, I think. And even that character, we we get like a we get like a taste of his like we get we get into some like psychological stuff there because we even learn the back we even kind of learn a bit of a backstory about how that fetish came to be, which I thought was kind of interesting. But okay, sure, I guess we need to know this. <laughs> nah, see that uh, that that got into really weird territory, and uh, I I don't know, like <laughs> e- e- even Again, making you can't some- sympathize with. Why? What, oh, I don't sympathize with that character at all. So no, no, no that's no. what I mean. What I'm trying to say, it's like it's about empathy. It's like understanding why they are the way they are. No, it's Sid, like... I, I totally, I totally get what you mean because I, I have this conversation with a lot of my friends all the time, especially when it comes to stuff like Gintama, where a lot of the antagonists in that series are like, uh, you know, constantly have like these 
backstories or whatever about like why they are the way they are and i constantly get into arguments with my friends because i'm like you know i understand i understand their actions and how they came about and they always constantly like accuse me of like trying to sympathize with them oh like they're still bad people and i'm like i know but like okay because so i i totally i get where you're coming from sid i have problems trying to express that too right you know i <laughs> I don't know. I'm not trying to kink shame Sakurai at all. Like, if, if, if that's what he's into, that's that's all good. But the way he's going about it is yeah. the problem. Like, you know, he can be... That, that's that's totally cool if he's into it. Like, it's fine. But, man, there's some, like, statutory issues and some yeah. consent issues. Mm-hmm. And, like, you know, it's... it's it, it's it's just really unhealthy all the way around. So it's you know you can understand where he's coming from. You can empathize with with his background, but it's still terrible. That mm-hmm. that empathy run r- starts to get a little thin when he goes when he starts taking his more extreme actions. Yeah, the, all that stuff is just yeah. That's something else. I really didn't know how to feel the first time I read through all that part of the series in general. I was kind of hoping he would get fired in the end, but obviously, you know, the the world isn't so kind, I guess. Um, <laughs> Nobody gets fired in GTO. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, but um, I, I guess, like, the last thing I really wanted to talk about like, was, I guess, like, the final arc where um, Daimon is introduced and uh, there's this whole, like, purging of the school system and all these links to try to get Onizuka fired and trying to control the school and whatnot. Um, if you guys remember that arc at all, uh, did you guys have any thoughts on the, I guess, the final arc in general? Some of it was a little convoluted, uh, kind of like like her student group or whatever. Yeah. Whatever they called. Yeah, and the show who was, like, in love with her, whatever, and, like, was this crazy, crazy guy. I felt like his character could be interest could have been interesting, but I felt like a lot of his character was a little rushed. Yeah, but, like, Daimon, like, just ostensibly is kind of like represents like the system and like uh the the people who see school as just like a business and you know uh just treat students as like kind of commodities and like it's all about the test scores and number of graduates it's not about the quality it's not about the the, whatever future lies ahead of the students it's not about like grooming them to become better people socially responsible people it's just about like pumping out students with high test scores and that's basically Diamond's deal. So it's like just one final like criticism of that that are basically uh it's kinda it's I sorta of liked her relationship with Sakurai, but you know, it's all again like her backs her like fundamental hatred is kinda of all based on a misunderstanding of uh Sakurai saved her from a burning building. It's like Okay, well, I, mean, I know. This is like, I'm I really, this, but I, yeah. I really, I really wanted to get into her backstory because I felt like that could have been good. But that's what bothered me about that was that, um, was, like you said, it was all predicated on the misunderstanding that because Diamond's trapped in like basically a burning building, and you know she had this whole history with Sakurai because Sakurai was her teacher at one point, and. She wanted to trust her or whatnot, and she basically she does everything she does because of a misunderstanding where she thought that, you know, Sakurai basically left her to burn and someone else had to save her. But when in reality, Sakurai did save her, 
and that's supposed to be a big reveal, but, you know, it's like you said, Sid, like, like that entire time I was thinking, all of this could have been avoided if Sakurai would have just told her, hey, I saved you from a burning building. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't, I don't know why, I don't know, I, I felt like, I felt like that was a little, uh, I, I felt like that was a little silly, honestly. <laughs> I don't know. I the the end of the story is is very unmemorable for me. So I I, I got I don't, I don't really have a whole lot to say about it, frankly. It has a a nice emotional kind of thing with Onizuka himself because you know he's kind of like pushing himself too hard. Like he's in danger of like really killing himself if he you know pulls off another like crazy stunt again. You know, so, you know, he had, and he's kind of almost at death's door at one point, and he sees, like, a vision of an old friend who, like, passed away. You know, that was a memorable moment. I haven't read far in Shonan Junai, or, uh, so I don't remember who that character was, but, yeah, it was a, it was a pretty, I mean, there's some good emotional moments for Onizuka that, like, you know, it, it added some, it added, like, a more personal stakes to the arc that kind of got, Used through some of the more uh, convoluted aspects of like what Diamond's plan was and like her aim, her like group. I think they're called the Angels and other than yeah, about yeah, it. yeah, and, and all that stuff. Actually, that's another thing I forgot to bring up earlier. Um, reading GTO at one point just made me want to read the original Shonan Junai Gumi because. I forgot to mention, for the longest time, I actually thought that um, GTO, Great Teacher Onizuka, was like the like the first in the franchise. And I thought, for some reason, I thought Shonan Junai Gumi was written afterwards. I didn't know that Shonan Junai Gumi came first. Uh, yeah, again, Dragon Ball Z comparison. Which, you know, just speaking as someone who's only read GTO, you know, even if you don't have knowledge of Shonan Junai Gumi, I mean, sometimes there are moments where, like, you can clearly tell uh, Onizuka is reminiscing on his past as a member of his biker gang or whatever. And some of those moments are really nice and really pique my interest as to what his adventures as a, uh, the, the adventures of a young Onizuka might have been. And it really just makes me want to read the original Shonan Junai Gumi. But I, I wonder how I would have felt about GTO if I had read that ahead of time. Um, but I, I think guess just again, Dragon Ball comparison, like you're probably going to feel like a lot more emotion in that moment. Uh, oh, if you yeah. have the context kind of like in the Saiyan saga, like when everyone's dying, you're going to feel a lot more emotion. If you've read Dragon Ball and been with these characters longer and like you see when like you can actually care when Chaozu explodes <laughs> and Tien's like, Chaozu, no! And then Tien sacrifices himself. Like, like again, you're, you're probably going to get a lot more out of those moments if you have the context behind it, if you've I, read what came before. Probably. You know, I, I, I don't know. I, I think that Fu, uh, Fujisawa made GTO so accessible to, to readers who hadn't read Shonan Janagumi. I agree that, that your emotional connection will probably be, uh, will probably deepen if you do read Shonan Janai Gumi and then go back and read GTO. But I don't think it's an, it's really necessary because the tone between those two comics shifts so dramatically. Like, the humor style, too, I think. Well, maybe not the humor style in its entirety, but at the same time, it's it's a very, very... GTO and Shonan Janai Gumi are just very different in a lot of ways. 
Yeah, once again, Dragon Ball Z comparison. Dragon Ball Z, a lot of people can get into it just on its own without having some Dragon Ball. Because it's, yeah. it's distinct and it's just distinct enough and it's just accessible enough that you don't, it doesn't matter, like, that there's this whole backstory thing of something. Well, before. that's, that's what I was, that's what I was gonna say was, you know, even with not reading the original Shonan Junai Gumi, I, I felt like I had a pretty easy time understanding Onizuka as a character without experiencing his past adventures. And I, I felt like I understood what he was all about. And I, I felt like, uh, even with him interacting with people like Ryuji and Saijima, I, I, I still, I could still feel the connection there. Like, like it, it made me want to read the original Shonan Junai Gumi, but I didn't feel, I didn't necessarily feel like I was like missing out, if that makes any sense. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And yeah. it's like, and like, Gonizuka is the only like character from Shonan Junai Gumi who's like, a main character. Like, Ryuji and Saijima are, like, supporting characters who pop in, like, time to time. They're not really that important. Though, to be fair, Saijima... Saijima at least had, like, helped Onizuka a bit during the Teshikawara arc a bit. Yeah. So, so he's he's a bit more involved, but I, I get what you mean overall. Yeah, Onizuka is him being the main character. He's obviously going to be doing more. Which, by the way, Saijima's chapters... Because there are, like, three or four chapters of just... Uh, of like just where it's just told from the point of view of Onizuka talking to Saijima about uh whatever Saijima is up to, whether it be like hooking up with like other girls <laughs> or or um going through like illegal trades and stuff. I actually those were probably some of my least favorite uh chapters in GTO. I thought some like at first I thought it was kind of funny, but then I it, the, the novelty of those kind of wore out on me a little bit. Yeah, I'm not that into Saijima as a character. Like, he can be fun in a supporting role, but, like, he, he's, like, the disgusting, some of the more disgusting per-behavior of uh, Onizuka taken up to 11, and it's, it's, it stops being fun with him. Yeah, there, so, there's a, there's a, there's a part at, at one point in the series where he, he implies that he has, like, date rape drugs, and I'm like, yeah, this, yeah, yeah I, I don't know if I really like this character too much anymore. Makes me yeah, uncomfortable. <laughs> you, can, you can see why I don't like Inuhead Gargoyle. I, well, I didn't care for that much. Since, you know, he's the main character. Saijima is, uh, yeah. <laughs> Onizuka's pretty gross, but, you know, then you get those Saijima chapters and you're like, no, 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 Onizuka's good. We're good. He, good here. He, mm. he, he smashes two baby pandas together. That's the <laughs> worst. <laughs> it's terrible. I felt sorry for those pandas. Um, yeah, those those chapters are definitely my least favorite. Um, I'd I'd rather read like five pages of Uchiyama the text than read a single chapter of Saichima, Honestly, I could honestly be down for a spinoff just about Uchiyama. I I think he's the strongest like supporting character. I feel at least to me like I re I just really like kind of the dynamic between him and Onizuka and the, the antagonism there, but also like you know. Onizuka does kind of help Uchiyama grow as a person throughout the course of the manga, so I also like that. I honestly don't think Uchiyamada has has enough depth or or has been given enough character development to to have a standalone series. Yeah, they I, actually, yeah I agree. They, they actually did an arc that was just him in Paradise Lost, and it was awful. It was <laughs> terrible. Yeah, it was. That's true. Like so, so I you know I'll I'll just spoil it because I don't care, but. So he he his family is like all you know miffed at him and whatever, and so he buys he buys a uh, an RV to go camping with, and then he ends up 
running into some rock star who's abusing his girlfriend and he rescues his girlfriend from this rock star whose manager then calls in a bunch of thugs to like hunt Uchiyamada down. Yeah, it's really stupid. And every time Uchiyamada has a moment of like actual character development, he sees this girl's like butt or something and then it's it just shatters like right there and then he spends 10 pages reverting back to his old self and like even in the end when Onizuka inevitably rescues him like he doesn't develop at all it's ah uh, i don't know i Uchimata well, sucks that's part of the kind of regression that i think uh the spin-offs have paradise yeah. lost in 14 days in shonen it's like kind of flan- it's like more flanderization of the characters partly why i don't like them a lot you know so something interesting i just just a side note i wanted to make i i didn't notice this before until i actually started going back and looking at my looking at my volumes I don't know if it's like this on the Tokyo Pop editions, but on the Japanese volumes, starting with volume 15, there's a little thing at the bottom that says Idea Support by SK Produce. So I, I think Fujisawa is actually getting like input and, and help in terms of developing the story past the first half of the, 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 first half of the series, which I, I think is kind of interesting. Huh, that's interesting. Um, I don't think I saw that credit anywhere in the Tokyo Pop volumes, um, at least not that I caught. But that is it. That's really interesting to hear because you know I was researching a little bit about GTO, like looking up its like circulation and everything. Because it, that's a, that's another thing too. Tokyo Pop really makes it a point to like basically the first half of the series. I think to mention that a great teacher Onizuka has sold like thirty seven million volumes worldwide or whatever. And that kind of got me interested in trying to look up, like, you know, if that, I guess that stat has been, like, updated at all since then. Because obviously, like, this release of GTO is from, like, over 10 years ago at this point. Yeah. Um, and nah, I mean, you... yeah, go ahead. No, no, go, go for it. I was, uh, was going to talk about uh, Fujisawa being filthy, filthy rich. So I would <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't be surprised that only that GTO has sold that many that many copies or like continues to sell tons of copies. Well, I was also I was also just going to mention um, that uh, at least according to Wikipedia, I had found that apparently GTO has sold 50 million copies at this point, which I don't know if that's really correct. I I saw that, but I didn't get really get a chance to like look into it further, but. I was just curious about how how much it had sold since then, because um, I don't know. I I think I don't know. I don't know if this is a weird thing to say, but I don't know. I don't know how popular GTO is nowadays. Like I know it was like the big thing, like years and years ago. Because I remember seeing it around a lot in bookstores, and you know, just coming across a lot of people in real life or online who would talk about it and be like yeah this is this is a really good series you should read it or whatever so i can't imagine it's too talked about nowadays it's popular at least over here as far as the west is concerned well it's an older title so it's not talked about as much but you know still with the existence of stuff like paradise Lost, like the franchise is still going and so people who keep have been keeping up with it are probably still you know reading that and like the series itself was very critically renowned and has like it's very well remembered in like fandom and stuff like if you look at my anime list and uh for both the manga and the anime like they they have high scores like over 8.7 
each, like, the manga is, like, ranked number 13, I think. So, you know, mm. it's, it's extremely popular and well-regarded. So it's, it's a series that has had, like, a lasting reputation. So, you know, if you're getting into, like, anime manga nowadays, like, you'll probably, like, learn about it. And you'll probably go check it out if you're interested. Like, that's kind of how it was for me. I got into it because there were friends on a forum that really liked it. And I was like, okay, I'll check this out. So I checked it out. That, that, actually, that's another thing, too. Like, because I had seen, because, uh, you know, some some of the Tokyo Pop releases have, like, quotes from other, like, magazines and other reviewers or whatever. I forget who, who constantly praised GTO. And, you know, for, for a while, just going back to like how I felt about the series going in, you know, I would see all this praise and I'd be in the middle of the first 10 volumes and I go, you know, this is fun and everything, but like, I don't like, I, I didn't really understand the praise for the series for a while, honestly. Um, you know, until I kept reading more and more and more of it, I'm like, okay, I understand why people like the series now. <laughs> Cause it's, you know, as, as much as I prefer the, I, I honestly, like I said before, I honestly do prefer uh, the more dramatic story arcs over the comedy, personally. Um, I understand now why this is such a, like, well-beloved series. Because it is, like, overall, I think it's really good. And honestly, I think it's it's kind of become one of my favorite manga now, honestly. Yeah, I mean, I felt exactly the same as, as you when I was reading it. Like, like I said, at a certain point, I was getting a little tired of it. And I was like, mm, I don't know why this is so... Well loved, after, <laughs> but then you know I kept reading more and I fell in love with it again. Like I, I can say I'm a fan of GTO, and uh, yeah. So the reason why I think GTO still is so resonant is because there are a lot of people who as kids might have felt the same way as Unisuka students. They felt like they couldn't trust adults. They felt like the education system was not treating them right, and they felt like. They were being victimized. So they lashed out and they when, they when they lashed out, they weren't like, no one tried to go to the root of what their problem really was. They just chastised them. They just punished them. And Onizuka, he doesn't just punish his students for when they, when they do something wrong. Like he, like he really shows them the error of their ways yeah. through some unorthodox means. But he also like helps them grow emotionally and like, Learn to take responsibility for themselves. Like, learn to be... And like I said, as we keep coming back to this, he helps them learn to become better people. And that's, I think, again, the core... Or like, everyone wants a teacher who will look out for you and really has your best interests in art and will go the extra mile for you. They will risk their lives to help you. And I think a lot of people, a lot of kids, wanted, wanted a teacher like Onizuka when they were younger. Oh, yeah. For me, I, I you know, I, I definitely agree with all that, but Onizuka as a character is just, his character archetype is my absolute favorite formula for a character. Like, the, the he's the, uh, the lovable underdog that may have some scumbaggy qualities, but at his core, he, is, he, he has, like, a very resolute moral code. And I think that's, that's one of the charms of his character, because... You know, uh, like you were saying, Sid, you know, his his main concern is for his students and to, to be that teacher that, that those students want. And the fact that, you know, he'll, he basically almost kills himself a bunch of times 
trying to to reach out to these students and to and to get there and you know the the that endearment factor is one of the reasons why this series is just so worth coming back to over and over again and why I'm willing to suffer through Paradise Lost. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Onisuka is definitely, like, a really strong character, and I think the series works so well because he's a very, he's a very funny character, but he's also a very, like, admirable character, and, like, a very, em- again, empathetic character, and that, like, some of the things he does, it might cross a line, but, like, you really root for him and you really like kind of see them as see him as like this uh an authority figure you can trust in the same way his students do and like the bond that he forms with his students is like very cathartic i think especially for a lot of kids who you know didn't feel like they got that in school and didn't feel like they had a parental or an authority figure who really was looking out for their best interests uh, I, I wanted to, to give a little aside, actually, to, to those pull quotes you were talking about, Colton, uh, be, because the reason they may have seemed odd might have been because Stu Levy paid someone to write those reviews. and Are write you serious? Like, I'm 100% serious. <laughs> wow. Like, so it, it, he did it again when Tokyo Pop came back. I, I, I'm sorry to derail on this tangent, but... No, this is uh, interesting. I, w- I want to learn more about this. So... so uh, yeah, so if you thought that they were they were a little bit too intense or a little bit like way too crazy, um, and maybe you may not be able to track them down anymore, I, I would very much put money on Stu Levy paying someone to write a glowing review of GTO just to put like ridiculously positive pull quotes on the books, because um, in, in like. So he did an he did an interview with uh, Vice magazine or something not too long ago, or maybe it wasn't Vice. It was some other it was some other web outlet. Okay, and it was basically the interview basically boiled down to a like a, a sales pitch for for why people should give them money again, and it was just. <laughs> It was so shameless. I couldn't believe what I was reading that, and that any publication would actually put this out there because there, there was no content beyond, you know, Tokyo pop is great. We totally didn't screw little creator, you know, independent creators and whatnot. We totally didn't destroy the manga market. We're great. You know? So anyway, mm-hmm. wow. That's, that's all terrible. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Tokyo pop. I I I cannot believe I've I've only just recently just starting started learning all this shit about Tokyo Pop. This is all like super interesting to me. Yeah, we should organize a roundtable, a podcast where we where we get you on, maybe get some other people on, they, and they all talk about how terrible Tokyo Pop was. I mean, you know, they're back. I refuse to give them a single dollar, a single penny to yeah. to su- support them. Like they seriously almost destroyed the the English manga market single-handedly. So, I got Mm -hmm. some strong feels about them. Well, they're not putting out any worthwhile content anyway. But, but Nick, you don't, you don't want their copies of, of their Finding Dory manga in your comic shop? Dude. (laughs) Oh my god. The the super limited edition that you have to get your hands on now, but they've been advertising it for eight months in previews? Give me a break. (laughs) Oh boy. Um 
I guess uh, I just I want to go back real quick to uh, the relatability of um, of GTO and its characters um, about what Sid was talking about with uh, you know people being able to resonate with the series on the students level where you know maybe they could have used somebody like Onizuka in their life just, just basically a teacher who cares. Um, it's really funny. I found myself relating more to Onizuka in the beginning just as this you know this this guy in his early twenties who's just kind of going day by day, doesn't really know what he wants to do with his life, and just feels kind of aimless or whatever, just trying to find his calling or a job or whatever, just trying to get through things. I found I found that more relatable in the beginning, especially when, when I was talking about earlier how, like, I didn't find Class 4 um, really relatable in the beginning just because I felt like, again, just it just goes back to the whole, like, I felt like a lot of their actions... Uh, while they, while you know, they were, they provided some good laughs. I, I couldn't take as seriously because it, again, it was one of those where I was like, oh well, what exactly, like, what, ha- what happened to these kids? Like, why are they going to such extreme lengths? And then eventually, when you get the full story about what happened to, especially Miyabi in particular, she's basically the linchpin for all of this. Uh, just a short version of that. Um, I felt like I started to maybe relate to the students a lot more as the series went on. So I appreciate that. Um, I can't really think of too many like teachers in my life who I really felt like I had a, like a real connection with. I can maybe think of a handful. So yeah, the more the series went on, I felt like I was able to relate to the students more, but definitely in the beginning, I felt like I kind of resonated with Onizuka uh, in his kind of life situation and whatnot. So I really appreciated that personally. Yeah, I think that's another aspect of GTO's appeal is that, like, for adults, you can somewhat relate with Onizuka and his, some of his motivations and, like, some of his perspective on life as having been, like, this kind of delinquent, at-risk kid when he was younger and now is put into a position where he has to take care of kids who are very much like himself and is trying to, you know, steer them on the right path. Yeah, that's another thing, too. Also, just as someone who maybe he didn't really take school as seriously as he should have and, you know, and, you know, just somebody who, you know, didn't really like school, just kind of went because he had to, you know, that's another aspect I feel like some people could really relate to when it comes to Onizuka. I definitely relate to that aspect of Onizuka. Like, (laughs) seriously, like, you know, the, the, the students, I think, were more universally relatable. But for me personally, like, his attitudes and philosophies were almost identical to what I was feeling, you know, when I was reading this in high school. I was like, this guy's a teacher and he thinks this? Get out of here. <laughs> you know? Because I, you know, school really felt like a chore. And, you know, I, I, yeah. I went to... I went to a school that, like, really did feel like Holy Forest Academy uh, in a lot of ways. That, like, it was more focused around, like, performance and prestige and stuff rather than actually, like, teaching students. And, you know, that's part of the reason why GTO resonated with me so much. It's because, you know, all of a sudden there's this character who's fictional, but... You know, he's saying all this stuff that that I was thinking, and and it was just I, I don't know. It was the perfect timing for me to be getting into that. I I do find myself kind of wondering how I would have felt about reading this manga when I was high school age. Um, I feel like I feel like a lot of it probably would have resonated with me as well. Um, yeah, I mean, I read it while I was in high school, and 
You know, uh, the more I age and more I go back to it, like I do get even more and more out of it. So I think it definitely is a manga that ages well with you and as you grow and mature. Um, I guess, was there anything else we really wanted to talk about with GTO? Because I think I went through all my points. Uh, I guess we can briefly touch upon the side stories and spinoffs of GTO just a little bit. I don't think there's honestly too much to say. We kind of went over like a brief synopsis of the plots earlier, but... No, they suck. Yeah, none of them are worth reading. That's basically the short answer. Uh, just read, just read Bad Company, Shonanjo Nagumi, and GTO, and then forget about the rest of the stuff in the franchise. Yeah, I, I, I want to make a make a point about uh, the the spinoff series, the the fourteen days and uh, and Paradise Lost. Okay, so so GTO takes place in like ninety seven to the early two thousands, right? And their the yeah. technology in that comic reflects that. 14 days in Shonan is supposed to happen literally like two days after the end of GTO. And all of a sudden, well, everyone. At- no, I think 14 days in Shonan takes place after the Teshigawara arc, when like Onizuka's in the hospital. And there is like this four, just two week period where no one knew, knows where he is. I'm pretty sure that's when it's supposed to take place. Really? Because, uh, yeah, I, because I, I, I uh, Rumi and then. Kikuchi appear, like, show up like halfway into it, too. So. Uh, okay. I, I then I I didn't pay as much attention to it, but anyway, my point still holds. So the, we're working on like late '90s, early 2000s technology. So he goes to Shonen, and then all of a sudden he's like playing PS3 with with uh, one of the students there, and like everyone has iPhones and stuff. And the same oh, thing weird. And and the same thing happens in um in Paradise Lost too. Like the technology upgrades again. Except it's still supposed to be like around the same time GTO GTO was happening. So he's really bad at at, at maintaining that kind of continuity. Yeah, hmm. I think what I'm most bothered by with Paradise Lost is that it has like an interesting idea in Onizuka being a prisoner in this jail, but then mo- the manga is just a flashback to him teaching this idol class that somehow is now at Harley Forest Academy that we didn't ever know about until now, I guess. And I don't know when this is even supposed to take place. But yeah. again, the problem with 14 Days in Paradise Lost is that it's just the same thing as GTO except with less interesting characters and it's just and we're, less where's, likable. Where's Fuyutsuki uh, in Paradise Lost? Like, she appears, exactly. she appears in the first two chapters, and then she just vanishes. It's yeah. like, what? <laughs> See, like, like, Onizuka in prison, like, you would think a lot of, like, really amazingly comedic possibilities would come out of that. Well, Yeah, but that's not what the manga's about. It's Tim flashing back to him teaching this idol class while in prison. While teaching all these prisoners the value of morality or something like that, I don't know. It's it's <laughs> it's weird. It's a waste. That's that's unfortunate. But also, all the students are just shades of the students from GCL. Like they have no unique personalities. They're all just basically cookie cuttered out of GTO into Paradise Lost and like reskinned or something like that. That sounds terrible. So. Mm-hmm. So which which of the two spinoffs are worse, Fourteen Days in Shonan or Paradise Lost? Paradise, Paradise Lost. Lost. Okay, <laughs> it's unanimous. 
14 days is just mediocre, but Paradise Lost actively made me angry and how bad it could get and, like, how bad some of the stories were. Plus, Paradise Lost goes full, like, crosses full on into Seinen at that point. And, like, yeah. I think the, the restraint uh, that I'm using restraint loosely here, but the restraint <laughs> in uh, in GTO actually worked to its benefit. But now that he can just go full on seinen, it's like you know, there's no there's tone policing is a bad way to put it, but like there's no there's nothing holding him back from just being like, hey, here's here's like TNA and more TNA, and hey, look, you didn't see TNA for three pages, more TNA, and like oh, some of the mm-hmm. some of the chapters just get like like there's some creepy stuff in in GTO, but there's some really really messed up stuff that happens in paradise lost it's like what is going through this guy's head like this is not okay in some places well obviously obviously his uh his erotic creative juices were very pent up in the late 90s and i guess this is uh i don't know i i guess this is just the result of that i don't know Man, that'd be interesting to look at GTO as like projection of Fujisawa's, Fujisawa's <laughs> own like <laughs> own hangups and whatever. But I don't think we need to go there. No, I I'd be fine with not learning about that kind of stuff ever in my entire life. That'd be fine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. But yeah. Well, I guess. See, I don't know. You got you guys. I I. I believe you fully that these spinoffs suck completely, but like the more I hear about them, the more I want to kind of like read them for myself and experience them (laughs) just out of like super morbid curiosity just for myself. I mean, that's fine, but don't come crying to us. (laughs) Don't. (laughs) Here's, here's my advice to you. Okay. And this, this is the same thing I did getting into paradise lost after having read 14 days. Don't have any expectations. Like, seriously, okay. forget everything that you... Aside from, like, the endearment of Onizuka's character, go into Paradise Lost or 14 Days with zero expectations, and you'll be way less disappointed that way. Oh, I, I have no doubt that I'll be disappointed. It's just, I'm, I'm a sucker for, like, bad things, and I just have more of a curiosity in bad things. Otherwise... Otherwise, I wouldn't watch stuff like uh, *Birdemic* or *The Room*. Or, but I guess you, you could you could you could argue that those things are enjoyably bad. Whereas uh, these spinoffs don't really sound like that kind of bad. No, they're, they're... yeah, you can laugh at those things. This is just painful. <laughs> these spinoffs are just painful to read. Agreed. Oh, that sounds terrible. <laughs> oh well, I mean, if it if it makes anybody feel any better, I they're not a priority. This is more of like, uh, uh, may- maybe I'll read them to see what people are talking about. But I have other things I could be reading right now. Mm-hmm. You'll get the idea of Paradise Lost in like the first four or five chapters, probably. And, you know, if you got Crunchyroll, they have, they simulpub it, so. And uh, as we talked about earlier in the show, actually, Kodansha just uh, started putting those out uh, digitally for sale, so. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I'm sure you can find those on Comixology or whatnot to buy or whatever. Um, I really do wonder what the sales for those are going to be like. But uh, uh, yeah, that that see that really that really like makes me sad because like just the idea of Onizuka being in prison should just be like this gateway for like some really funny stuff. 
and I r- really feel like could have led to like a really fun manga, but I I guess not. Well, it's not about the, the manga is even about. So I I I know, but it it it's 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 kind of a shame that that's not what Fujisawa went with. Yeah. The the whole way the story's told is he's in prison and this guy's like, "Why are you here?" and he's like, "Well, gather around and I shall tell you a tale." <laughs> and yep. then it flashes back. And so this this like it's only like 6 or 7 volumes so far, but I get the impression that he's going to drag this out as long as humanly possible to to <laughs> actually find out like why Onizuka's in prison. It's it's dumb. Mhm. Uh, that's well. I mean, you know, Fujisawa has to make that GTO money somehow. <laughs> Dude, he's already got he's already got bank. He doesn't need more money. I when I was <laughs> in Japan last year, I actually saw a talk show where where they gathered a bunch of wives of like famous Japanese celebrities, and Toru Fujisawa's wife was there talking about their house. So they did a tour of his house. Dude's got a four-story mansion in the heart of Tokyo with an elevator that goes between the levels. <laughs> like, wow. this dude is rich. <laughs> <laughs> and how how long ago did you see this talk show, just out of curiosity? It was in uh, August of last year. Oh, that recent, huh? Yeah. Holy shit. Wow, that's... Uh, well, I, at least he's doing well for himself, I guess. <laughs> he, he's got his studio floor... And then he's got his entertainment floor. They're separate floors, by the way. That's amazing. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. Um, so so he's not really hurting for revenue right now. <laughs> apparently. Like, that really makes me curious as to, like, I guess what the opinion of, of uh, Paradise Lost in particular is amongst, like, Japanese fans. And, like, I guess how well that series actually sells for him. Well, I mean, it's I, still running, so I guess it's selling just enough i guess so that's that's really amazing wow um well i guess with all that um i guess uh unless there was anything else you guys want to bring up um i don't think we have any emails do we uh no we don't have any emails or questions this time around so i think we can uh, close off the show now thank you for coming aboard nick it was great discussing gto with you yeah guys thanks very much for inviting me i you know was Good times talking Furio teachers. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so where can the good people find you, Nick? You can find me on Twitter at SPD4649. Uh, you can also find me... No, nah, really just Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> as for me, you can find me as Lam Ramayasha on Twitter and Animation Revelation. And that's, yeah, basically where you can find me. And as where you can find me, you can find me on Twitter as SniperKing323. That's S-N-I-P-E-R-K-I-N-G-323. I also do a lot of other podcasts. There's uh, Life Lessons, the Gintama Manga cast, where I cover the the old Viz Media release of the Gintama Manga from the beginning. And then I also uh, do a podcast about Case Closed or Detective Conan called One Podcast Prevails, if you want to go listen to that. That's at uh, onepodcastprevails.wordpress.com. Uh, I guess I forgot to mention, uh, you can also find Life Lessons at gettolifelessons.wordpress.com. Uh, but just as for the podcast and all comic and all that, uh, you can find every episode of Manga Mavericks first, obviously, at uh, all-comic.com. And if you want to follow all comic, uh, you can find us on facebook.com slash all.comic or on twitter.com slash allcomic underscore. 
Uh, but if you want to follow Manga Mavericks specifically, uh, you could follow us on Twitter at manga underscore Mavericks, uh, where you'll find the latest updates on the podcast and how maybe how editing's going, what we're going to be talking about next episode, whatnot. And, uh, you know, if you have any questions for us, uh, how do you feel about GTO uh, and the franchise? Uh, how did you like uh, listening to Nick? Should we have him on again? I, I think we should personally, but, you know, uh, w- you know, if you have any questions you want us to discuss on the show or whatnot, uh, what manga are you reading? Uh, what do you think about all the news we're talking about or whatnot? Uh, send us anything over at uh, mangamavericks at gmail.com and we'll read it on the show. Uh, but the most important thing, guys, is that you subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes uh, if you choose to do so. And uh, I think that's going to be about it for this episode of Manga Mavericks. This has been episode 30, and we will see you guys next time for episode 31. Bye, guys. Sayonara. Sayonara.